0: Ready? Yeah. Okay. And we're back.
1: That's so staying in the show. Okay. In fact, you should say it louder so it's on the microphone. You have that thing where you can make it louder. Like I do, and will.
2: This briefing is from file A56-7W. Classified top secret subject is...
3: Hey kids, comics!
1: Comic books early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can bring them better than
2: they were before. Better. Stronger.
1: I wondered if you were going to step well, in. Well, you
3: said everybody, so. Hello, everybody. Do I come under everybody, or do would you like to
1: come under everybody?
3: I'd like to be the <laughs> the, the other percent that isn't included within that one hundred percent. Okay, okay. Hello, I'm Andrew. I'm Michael,
1: and this is another episode of Hey Kids Comics. We're glad you tuned in. We're glad that you picked us out of all the free entertainment that is out there on the interwebs. I'm
3: laughing at
1: that Budweiser advert. What Budweiser advert? At the top. Wait. Oh, for drinkaword.co.uk.
3: Wait for it to actually go on. It's just like. It's not good.
1: But we're not a Budweiser We've got a podcast.
3: No, if it was a, well, you know, we have opposable forms in which to pick things up. Was that the what's up thing? I don't
1: know. Was, uh but that was Budweiser, wasn't it? Budweiser. Yeah, and the frog. Yeah.
3: But the chameleons. You, were. you, you used to have some uh, like chameleons. I've got a t-shirt. Budweiser t shirts with the chameleons on. But you had a little chameleon, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Was it called Karma? No, I don't think so. Uh, no, it was called... I can't see it. Where is that blasted thing? <laughs> <laughs> Funny.
1: None yeah. of this is in anywhere relevant. I no.
3: will to... we I uh, To what we're discussing
1: this very night. Um, it's... Spotlight on. We're still doing that, aren't we? hmm <laughs> God damn. Um, which episode are we up to? Is this spotlight number five? Yes. We are shining the spotlight on my choice this week. Yes. But first... But first... But wait, there's more. There's
3: always more. Yes. Less is not more, more is more. Unless you're Sir Roger Moore. Unless more is less. Unless more is less. And in the case of Roger Moore, more is definitely less oh Star less is definitely better I like Roger Ma. anyway emails yes
1: after our usual plugging of the old shows which still go up every Thursday on Two True Freaks as you listen to this we will be smack dab in the middle of our coverage of the
3: Star Wars movie adaptations from Marvel Comics it's
1: do you remember doing them?
3: Um, yeah all that time ago that, that was when our ratings went up. We were so... They did, didn't they, when we got the Star Wars ones? Yeah. The ratings went up a bit. I think we had about
1: 16 people listening oh, to yeah. us then instead of From 10. 14 to 16, <laughs> yeah. Uh, our first email tonight. Also, oh, go and check those out. 2 Be gone. Listen to an old show. Then come back and listen to a new one. I preferably
3: don't listen to an old one. Why not? Have we, have we gotten good yet? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. We've, we've gotten good now. Okay as good as we ever got yeah. obviously
1: which is to say still I, needs improvement I think every week we reach a new peak we do we reach a new peak we do but then we still realise there's plenty above us yeah to, to, to scale yes I think we're still kind of we've kind of inched up the mountain a, a podcasting little podcasting Everest yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: we're down here in the <laughs> little camp
1: yes we're down a little camp yeah. a little camp down at the bottom our first email is entitled How Much Crow Are You All Gonna Make Me Eat? Wasn't that a bad film? The Crow? Yes. No, the first Crow film's good. The second one's bad. I don't think I've ever watched any of the sequels. Okay. By the time you get to the one that's got David Boreanaz in, I don't believe they were any good. Right, okay. But I don't know. They may have all been great for all I know. I saw the first one at the cinema. Sure. Not
3: quite The Aurora it. Boreanaz. The
1: Aurora Boreanaz. Yeah. How long before Aiden's email mentions that we're British? Dear Brits! <laughs>
0: hey, hey! Right hey. off the
1: bat. Luke and Mike. We're not Luke and Mike. No. What can I say? You guys took me to task for comparing Flashpoint to Crisis, and, well, damn, you proved me wrong repeatedly. So my hat is tipped to both of you. I concede you that particular point. Oh, yeah, that's when he emailed in about Crisis, and then Luke Giaconetti and Michael Bailey emailed in and said, No, you're wrong, and here's why. Fair enough. Remember, we weren't even involved in that conversation. No. We merely passed on the messages. We're we're the pigeons between (laughs) these people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the carrier pigeons yeah. coo
0: coo coo coo
1: <laughs> I've read Animal Man the first three issues and I'm enjoying it quite a bit I do find the art a bit strange but I'll get back to you on that one and Swamp Thing is sitting on my to read pile and they ut- together what simultaneously yes, you like do. read an issue a page of Animal Man and then a page
3: of Swamp Thing well okay you don't go to that, that would be, be a bit an confusing issue by issue yeah issue by because issue you have to make sure give me
1: all the comics I've ever needed that you
3: read issue 11 of Swamp Thing like Animal Man right. before you read issue 11 of Swamp Thing right are they are they interconnectedly crossed That's over in the crossover.
1: Starts, yeah, right okay Andy you took me to task for boycotting Brand New Day you're wondering why I am well Brand New Day was the first comic boot run I ever picked up and I loved it I would sing its praises for days. I have it all and I've read it all multiple times. Then I began to read back issues, and I've just become ashamed of that side of my collection. I look at the books and they feel soulless to me. Spider Man isn't about getting laid or being young, it's about helping people and being responsible. Then again, with great power comes great responsibility, my entire moral foundation, so I think that being married became a wonderful part of the book. And I think that some of the greatest comics ever, and by far my favourite Spider-Man books, were published in the wonderful era between the Clone Saga and the reboot. I know that we disagree on that. Do not get me wrong, I'm not trying to ruin your enjoyment of the books, because, well, I want people to enjoy them. I'm just letting people know my problems with it. Um, I don't disagree with you that Spider-Man has problems at the minute. Mm -hmm. I don't don't think the book's that good at the moment, which pains me, because I quite like Dan Slott. Yeah. But... I don't think Brand New well, Day was a mistake. My my thinking with them was that they should have done what Straczynski wanted to do, which was go back to issue 101 and just go from there. Okay. But I was a proponent of Brand New Day. I didn't like how they got there, but you disagree with me on that, don't I do you? Like Cause how I do like that. Because Peter Parker making a deal with Mephisto, yeah. the devil. That's perfectly in character.
3: I do think in in <laughs> the, the situation he was in... I do, and also, I do it think wasn't it, it, was, it
1: Murray Jane that made the deal, not Peter?
3: Yes. So, although I do think it was Murray Jane is the best part in that entire story because she points out to Peter that, she, that Peter and Murray Jane have an entire life ahead of themselves, and yet Aunt May will probably die pretty soon now, pretty soon now anyway. Pretty soon, anyway. But Peter's like, no, if it was natural causes, that'd be fine. But that bullet was meant for me. Oh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go
1: to the alternate dimension where they killed Aunt May in issue 120 of Amazing Spider-Man instead da, of Gwen. I want to go to the alternate dimension with the never wasn't Aunt May. Oh no, you can't not have her. Let's have Aunt May die instead of Uncle Ben. Certainly for the first 40 or so issues, she's quite necessary. Don't After that, not so much. No. That, and I think that Dan Slott is a terrible writer. I gave big time a shot, but mm, yeah, not for me. No, his She-Hulk run was fun. Haters gotta hate yeah that's true the John Byrne episode was fantastic I'm a fan no follower no that's not it either an admirer I'm an admirer of Byrne I'm sure you guys are familiar with Panini Comics Astonishing Spider-Man series well my first issue of any comic was Astonishing Spider-Man Volume 1 Issue 100 which is an incredible issue it's huge it has in it Amazing Spider-Man 20 a five page text piece summarising the clone saga with inset art from the original issues and the main feature was Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2 Issue 12 and Peter Parker Spider-Man Volume 2 Issue 12 my first experience with Spider-Man in the comics and John Byrne were two issues of the reboot, and God, that Sinister Six 2 Part is fantastic. Taken out of context. See, again, Spider-Man Chapter 1 is... What's a polite way of saying it? Misguided. It lost its way. Isn't polite way of... It. No, it's just completely unnecessary. Okay. And the reboot... They never had a way to lose. <laughs> was, again, completely unnecessary. But there are some good issues in the Burn-Mackie run. Okay. It wasn't a reboot. It was... A and they just relaunched it with number one, yeah. So, yeah, fair enough. For some reason, my youthful mind wasn't happy with those two issues, despite numerous warnings that further delving into the reboot would cause pain. <sighs> Let's just say I got context. Now, this isn't fair to Mr. Byrne in the slightest, but sometimes you can't shake that first impression. I think his Superman work is some of the greatest comics ever. I think everything else is meh, but down when the guy is firing on all cylinders, it's fantastic. Andy, if you read Cold War, the Damocles contract? Fantastic. Yes. Or is that the newest one? Mm, it was the one that he did before he did Trio, and yes, it is very good. And okay. um, Trio's not. Okay. Which is quite disappointing. I want him to do more Cold War, yeah. and I don't care if he doesn't do any more Trio, because I probably won't buy it anyway. Fair enough. Which is trio, a four characters. <laughs> yeah. Sense is made. <laughs> uh, anyway, bedtime. Take care, folks. Aiden and Mohan. Hello, Aiden, Thank you very much. Uh, our next email is from Luke Giaconetti. Quite frankly, I don't care for It's his subject ah. Do you think what he did, though? I did. Can you see what this one's going to be about? Yes. In lieu of your new email policy, I will be truncating my thoughts a bit to help keep you guys on format. As such, Frank Quitler. you don't have to truncate your thoughts. We like getting long emails. Yeah. It's just we received a number of messages from a number of people who felt, and it was a valid criticism, I like to think that we are open to valid criticism. We we turned into an email podcast. That we turned into an email podcast and the email part of the show was threatening to swamp the other parts of the show. So we don't want you to truncate your emails. Mm -hmm. If one email takes us the full 30 minutes, then so be it. Uh, I cannot think of a single comic in which I enjoyed because of Frank Whitley's contributions to it continues Luke. There have been several with which I've enjoyed despite his artwork All-Star Superman is the obvious one, but none which sold me on something because of his artwork alone. I distinctly remember the first time I saw his work, it was an issue of Wizard, which had an article hyping New X-Men, and one of the pieces of art featured was his cover to New X-Men 114, with everyone wearing the puffy jackets and having overly long legs and necks and gangly limbs. As I looked at that image and read the comments from Grant Morrison in the article, I said loud, obviously I was alone by reading it, well I guess I'm never reading the X-Men ever again prophecy that turned out to be true. Yeah, I can see Luke's point, though. That cover isn't very good, is it? To be fair.
3: Yes, but you know the saying, never judge a book by its cover?
1: Yeah, but we were judging it by its interior
3: art as well. Well, (laughs) Don't Judge New X-Men by Frank Whitley. Why? Well, yeah, because how many did he do in total? Frank Whitley did two story arcs and probably six issues. Right. But Okay. I'll just clean some milk from Michael's lip because I'm now, still his dad. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that that series <laughs> had some damn, damn, damn bad, damn bad artwork in it. Who was bad? Frank Whitley and eager cord Right. Okay, but not only was it bad, 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 really bad artwork, but you'd then... Was it bad? It was... But you'd then have Lionel Francis Hugh and Ethan Van Skever and Phil Jimenez. Right. And despite the artwork, that series is really, really damn good. Everyone does say that his X Men run is is really good, but the
1: art's yeah, not. But you gave me that one issue that I thought was a bit pants. frankly one more. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Neil, Neil, who's Neil? Luke's email continues. See, Luke and email, I mix them together. Yes. Yeah. The final nail in the coffin came a few months later with the incredibly awful colour of Emma Frost, which was supposed to be super hot, or super sexy, or whatever. She just looks lumpy and ridiculous with pudgy, borderline, cherubic face on top of her body. Which is trying to be
3: realistic, and it looks like it was carved out of hummus and cottage cheese. <laughs> um, yeah, that cover's crap. Again, you're judging it by Frank Quitley though. So. Yeah, but you spent an entire issue defending Quitley. I spent an entire issue defending his storytelling. And in some cases, you were
1: absolutely right. That black and white dark off presents... I will, prefer change my opinion of his art.
3: Yeah, because it was really, really good. Mm. But with New X Men in particular, yes, it's you can't decide not to read that because of its art.
1: Yeah, but if you don't like Grant Morrison either,
3: there, is, yeah, okay. If you don't like Grant Morrison, you don't read it. But if you do like Grant Morrison, you t- decided not to read it solely because of. Or even art. if
1: you're just open to giving him another chance.
3: Yes, but I'm saying that's a run that you can't decide not to read just because of one artist. Because right. there are very good artists, and it's a very good run.
1: Okay, fair enough. Um, So yeah, sorry Michael, no sale on this one. Thanks for reading my email and keep up the good work on the show, Luke. We will always read your email, Luke. Anyway, our final email tonight, yes, we've only got three tonight, so it's a very short email section. Chris Keith has sent us an email entitled, John Burns Spotlight Episode. Oh, and he's got a lovely little picture of him holding a little baby. I like it when they have little pictures. Do you okay? I love a little picture. Okay. That's quite cute, that. So
3: you can see the faces.
1: Well, you can't see his face on that. But it's quite a cute photo.
3: Okay. We've got pictures of me holding you like that. Have we? Yeah, pictures of you asleep on my belly. We've got pictures of me in the drive fast asleep in the driver's seat of the car. Yeah. And another picture of me with like a wine bottle. Shut up. (laughs) We don't we don't talk about that. (laughs) And then a picture of me with you lying on top of me reading comics. Oh yeah, that's
1: fine. We don't mind that one. John Burns Spotlight episode is Chris's headline. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Chris. Yes, I've accepted your challenge to take part and list my favourite Burn issues. Of course, this means that I'll have to do some thinking rereading in the next few days, but it'll take me that long to write this email. Before I get to that great show as usual, thank you very much, we appreciate that. FF 250 was a favourite, as was all of Burn's FF run. Classic stuff that had so much character building for everyone. It's amazing that you can take existing characters and without retconning or killing everyone around them. You can flesh them out and make them real. Yes, that's a shot at modern day thinking. I read Alpha Flight in college and, yeah, you can stop after Burn. Burn. Here I'm saying that you don't need to kill and then resurrect Guardian. Oh well, Burn created him. The rest of Alpha, mm, no. And I really need to reread the Batman Captain America book because I, I only read that one time when it first came out. Okay, here comes some Burny goodness, which will include some burn art only for one. And I'll limit it to four in order to keep it under the clock. Number one Avengers West Coast 50, The Return of the Human Torch, which is an excellent issue. Mm-hmm. Very well inked that one by somebody called Mike Macklin. Okay. Who, I don't know what you went on to do. Did he go on to do some Batman, Mike Macklin? Really. I have mean, I think he may have done. I would like to go on, record saying I disagree 100% with what Byrne did to the vision. Years of humanising him was thrown away in one story, and you had ghostly white boring data vision for the next decade, almost. Then when he came back, his marriage was gone, his ex-wife was a whack job, and he was relegated to the background
3: until She-Hulk rips him in half. <laughs> That actually does sound that bad? It's... No, it's really bad. Is it? Oh, okay, sorry. The Avengers Disassembly. Is that under Bendis? Yes. It's his first story arc and it is really, really bad. But his run as a whole, you say, is very good. Yeah. It's just, as a starting point and as a story itself, it's really So it's like a TV show with a bad pilot episode but a good first season. It's got some useless deus ex machinas in there somewhere. Just, like, ridiculously silly ones. You've got pointless deaths everywhere. It's Bendis. I mean, really pointless. Some of them that don't even happen. Oh, yeah, uh, Hawkeye died a couple of panels back, but we didn't mention NOT them.
0: LIKE
1: THIS!
3: Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: Oh, yes. Chris's email continues. However, this boot was my first exposure to the Golden Age Human Torch in a story that actually gave the guy something to do. Giant Size Avengers number three goes to only serve to forward the plot. F of Annual four. Did he ever talk? The Golden Age reprints I'd seen to that point were well they were stupid He flew to Jupiter this story presents the character in such a cool light and damn did burn draw a great torch you want him to be an avenger hate the long term effects to the vision love the reappearance and the breath of life into the golden age character Captain America 255 which we've covered on this here show Yeah. ah my first Cap book ever my dad let me pick out a comic book at an old Commerce Street newsstand in downtown Dallas. And how could you pass up that gorgeous cover? I'd never heard of Cap at that point. He may have been on Spider-Man and his amazing friends, but I'd missed that episode. And this origin story hooked me for life. The end, with the national anthem playing on TV and Cap saying, It's worth it, made me love this character. Stern was brilliant as usual, but the iconic images by Byrne, FDR giving him the shield, Cap riding the motorcycle into battle, the Avengers. I was six, I had no idea who they were, and I was probably wondering why Superman wasn't a member Wow. Yes, FF255 is awesome. I'm sure I met Captain America 255. Yeah. But FF255 was probably awesome as well. Okay. Uh, FF267, the last panel... Say what you will about the gorgeous Reed versus Doc Ock battle. And it is gorgeous. But that last panel, that is storytelling. And tearing up a little right now just thinking about it. Some other writers would have put Sue in a corner after this incident. Byrne finally made her a valuable member of the team and paved the way for her finally to be treated as the most powerful. Still can't believe she tore a hole in a celestial into Falco's room. Yeah, that's the one we talked about last week.
3: Okay. Where
1: she lost the baby. Right. It is a very good one.
3: Okay. Wait, didn't they have the baby though?
1: Ultimately Jeff Loeb would wreck on it so they ended up having the baby yes, which okay. is where Valeria came from. Okay. Number four, Superman 22. Was twenty-two Burns best work on the book? Maybe, maybe not. I love the simplicity of the Joker story earlier in his run. His Legion story was brilliant. Why did I pick this one? I collected around it because I couldn't find the book anywhere, so I knew what happened in the book. I just couldn't lay my hands on it. In hindsight, it was only about eight months that I looked, but I was eighteen, so eight months. Finally, whilst in college, I happened into Dragon's Lure Comics, a place that is sadly no longer there. And looking through the back issues, I found it. 75 cents, and it was mine. The art was excellent. The story was wow. Even knowing what happened, I think what hit me the most was the silence in the story after the deed is done. You realise after the story is over that Byrne left a permanent mark on the character, turning down a road that no one else had ever dared. Okay, Alan Moore, but I don't count a hit-and-run compared to an ongoing series. I'm rereading The Burn Superman run right now and I'm ten issues away from this book. I can't wait to see it again because it takes me right back to freshman year of college, getting back to my dorm and finally reading The Holy Grail. Thanks for indulging my trip down memory lane. I have 15 minutes of Frank quickly to go. I don't know if I'll have as enthusiastic feedback for his work, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah. Um, we almost... I say we.
3: Yes.
1: I almost picked a Burn Superman.
3: Which... 22, which is twenty
1: two. Superman twenty two is the one where he kills the phantoms on criminals, General Zod. Right,
3: okay.
1: He actually exposes them to gold kryptonite and kills them. He kills them? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, remember that one? I've never really. It's that. a very powerful story. There's a part of me that's like
3: And yet you're talking to and it seems like a ridiculously stupid thing that shouldn't be in a superman. Yeah, or shouldn't be something that Superman should be doing. The,
1: see there is this it's a very, very powerful and well written and well done story but there is a difference between Superman does not kill and Superman will not kill again.
3: Yes, because you're reading it and then you look at the last panel and remember there's an S on him. Yeah. yeah.
1: So it's it's well worth reading, and okay. it is good, but there is that sour taste in your mouth that Superman just killed somebody. Yeah. Which is a bit dubious. But it's, it's well worth reading. Um, I think if I was going to have picked... A burn Superman. Oddly, it would have been one that he didn't draw. We'd have done Action Comics number one, okay. which was the Superman-Batman team up against the vampires. Do you remember that one? I think I do. That's great, that one. Arthur Adams did the artwork. Yeah. It's a fantastic issue. Well worth it. So, we may do that one if we ever do a vampire episode. Okay. A couple of two madraculas Draculas or something. Yeah. Thank you for always for an A++ plus 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 podcast, Chris Keith. Thank you, Keith. You're very welcome. We thank you for your kind words. Uh, that's it for emails this week. Next... It's up my spotlight. Yeah. It's up my spotlight. Um, But we're going to have a break, and we'll be right back.
2: (laughs) Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm. low Cats... Lolcats, porn, lolcats. What's this? Bailey's Batman podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker podcast? Eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia.
4: Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here, asking you to check out my bi weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast. Or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker, so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement?
1: And we're back. And it's good to be here.
4: Yes. And so, my
1: final spotlight on and the penultimate spotlight on of the season yes um, have you, do you think that people have enjoyed this I'd I would like them to email in and tell us if they would like us to do this again because yeah. this was an experiment hmm. I don't know if it worked as with all experiments you can only really judge them after the experiment is finished yes. so we'll see how it goes and if people tell us if it works. and if people tell us that they enjoyed it yeah. um, my pick this week three shiny issues of shiny goodness right before my shiny hands uh, has oft been a controversial figure, although not in the same way that my last two picks have. This writer isn't somebody who, by and large, has gotten into trouble for his opinions or spats with other creators. Just in trouble because of what he's written. And more or less. He, he takes a rather dignified silence in matters like that, doesn't he? <laughs> no, this week, it's his work that has been controversial. Back when we did our Preacher episode... We said that, as a rule, we try to be very family-friendly, don't we? Yeah. You won't hear a tirade of four-letter words on our show. We occasionally push the PG-13 limit, or the 12 certificate. When we feel like saying, heck or darn. Yes, when we feel like saying, "hezmana," or dren, or frel, or frack. But for the most part, we try and keep it so that little ears will not be offended if they happen upon our show.
0: Mm.
1: However... Tonight, we are discussing the work of a writer that it is often
3: quite difficult to talk about. Best kept away from little ones. Yeah, I wouldn't
0: like, say that.
3: You giving a preacher to a little 13-year-old Yeah, pick. but you're my son. If <laughs> yeah.
1: I choose to give you preacher to read, that's my choice. Yes. And I will not have somebody say, you're a bad parent, because I gave you something like that to read. Yeah. I happen to think you've turned out to be quite intelligent. Okay. Despite me giving you free to read. <laughs> um, so yeah, we will we still endeavour to keep this so that if you listen to this into the car or you have it on at home or whatever, your little children won't be grossly offended by what we say. You no, know, the children won't be offended, the wife would. <laughs> that, that, that's very true. The children um, will laugh and say, What does that mean? <laughs> but today we are covering one of my favourite writers. Yeah. Mr. Garth Ennis. Mm. Ennis was born in Northern Ireland in 1970 and after a few small press comics like Triple Souls and For a Few Troubles More and True Faith in the late 80s he headed down the well-worn path of most UK writers i.e. the one that led to 2000 AD after a few story arcs with Judge Dredd Ennis took over Hellblazer with the fondly remembered Dangerous Habits storyline where John Constantine literally cheats death best run ever do you think them, even yes. with the Will Simpson artwork which is very scratchy. Once it gets to Steve Dillon. With all due respect to Dave Walker, yeah. once it gets to Steve Dillon, yes. But Dangerous Habits was an exceptional calling card. The entire run was good. Yes, his entire run on Hellblazer was so good,
3: he has ruined Hellblazer for me for other writers. My favourite bit is the back end where Kit leaves him. Yeah, and he just spiralled into depression. Yeah, where it's just like five issues of him just doing nothing. Moving around.
1: Because, <laughs> yeah, they kind of a bit self-pitying. Perhaps, but still a very, very good run. This is an exceptional story arc, as Michael's pointed out, not least in its confidence and swagger, but it would be remarkable to watch how quickly Ennis would grow as a writer over the next few years working on Hellblazer. Teamed with artist Will Simpson and Steve Dillon, like we've just said, Ennis would create an almost definitive run on the Master Mage. um, Work that I don't think's been surpassed. Well... This
3: day. Not really read much Hellblazer. No, because he kind of ruined the character for me. I've read the Jim Delano stuff. I read Paul Jenkins' run. Okay. And I read Warren Ellis' run. I've also read the first batch of Peter Milligan's run. Mm. I stopped reading it um, on the marriage story arc because the issue I was up to was in Spanish. That's what you get for illegally downloading your comics. Yeah, but the, the Peter Milligan stuff's really good. Is it? There's, there's one issue about um, the 2012 Olympics and how the stadium was built on an ancient burial ground. are they always? <laughs> yeah.
1: um, with the advent of Vertigo in 1995, Ennis and Dillon teamed up to create Preacher, the finest self-contained finite series ever to be published by an American comics company. And that's just my opinion. That's fact.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> um, in my opinion, the finest thing Ennis has ever written, Preacher. I think it's a um, phenomenally good series. It's a phenomenally
3: consistent series from start to finish. I see Hellblazer and Preacher as a double bill.
1: Yes, I don't disagree with you, but my argument with Preacher is that the 66 issues of Preacher, if you ignore the spin-offs and you the miniseries... You ignore the spin-offs. Um, it's a single sustained piece of work from two people yeah Ernest and Dylan the miniseries Saint the Killers was a miniseries wasn't it and then they did a couple of one shots that were by other artists yeah and there was one bookshelf format special that was by Dylan it was Tall in the Saddle yeah was by Steve Dylan and the, all of the spin off shoots are good they're not necessary to the, the overall art Hellblazer was by a couple of different artists yeah so you, you, and The Boys has been interrupted as well. Derek Robertson hasn't driven drawn every issue for some reason yeah, that I've not understood. The Boys isn't all that good. I like The Boys on its own merits. Okay. It's not as good as Preacher by any stretch of the imagination. Well. And I think when it was hyped up as going to out-preach a Preacher... I actually think that air did it a disservice because that implies that the only thing that people remember Preacher for was the gross-out stuff.
3: Which, when you have um, inbred families shooting poo out everywhere... Mm. It's valid. And a giant fat guy exploding yes. into everyone. Yes, all
1: of this. It's valid that that's what it's remembered for. Yeah. But that, to me, is not what that series was about. Yeah. and to remember it purely for the gross art stuff is to do it an incredible disservice to say that like, you haven't read it yeah you haven't yeah. read it and immersed yourself in it and have understood what the series is really about well, I read it as a western well yeah it's a western but <laughs> it's Best also way to read it. it's, it's Ennis's mediations on religion and it's Ennis's mediations on politics and his, his idea of how people should relate to each other and at its heart it's about friendship and loyalty which yes. is really what all of his stuff's about
3: lost its way do you think I don't think Preacher ever lost its way I think it lost its way when it became just the Adventures of Jesse the Sheriff yes
1: I knew you were going to say that
3: yeah I don't that's, think Preacher I, lost its way I enjoyed um Sheriff Custer yeah um as the Adventures of Sheriff Custer I think in the overall Preacher narrative that's where it lost its way especially with at that point not only did you have Sheriff Custer but you also then had the odd pages where it would be deep, uh, bleak and depressing. Yeah, because at that
1: point, spoilers Ca- for Preacher. Cassidy, Cassidy and Tulip are and, in some bad relationship because they think Jesse's dead, and don't Cassidy they? dopes her up. Yeah,
3: so and that he essentially
1: really takes bleak. advantage of her. Yeah, essentially. Well, not essentially. He does. Yes. Um, see, I don't think Preacher ever lost its way. It's the one series throughout the middle of the 90s where I was kind of ebbing on comic buy and I didn't buy as much when you came around. W- I didn't go to Comic marts. No, it's just the stuff happens. Yeah. And, but your mum would make me go and buy Preacher because she knew how much I enjoyed it. That and Untold Tales of Spider-Man Okay. kept me going in the 90s. And I, st- I don't think it did. I, th- I still think it's his masterwork. But his growth as a writer... Over these two series was an astonishing thing to watch. It was particularly notable was that neither series had editorial mandates forced on him. Hmm. Nor did any disdain for superheroes show over much in these two series taking place as they did outside of mainstream DC continuity. He waited for Hitman and the Boys for that. He went well, see the boys again he's using avatars. So yeah, I don't mind that. They're still fairly obvious avatars. Not so much. Not really. Yeah, you can say that's the Wonder Woman archetype. Yeah. That's the Superman archetype. Yes. But it's not them because he wouldn't be able to do that with those characters. No, but it's obvious that that's what he's saying. Yeah. But well, see, with these war stories, he's not a big fan of people like Captain America and stuff, is he? Because he thinks to put fictional characters like that into yeah. World War Two stories does a disservice to the real soldiers. yeah I uh, see. I don't agree with that. I actually think it did them in real life it was a morale boost yes it was a morale boost and there was a propaganda element to it and there was the idea that the people at home were supporting him because you've got to remember in World War 2 there was no instantaneous communication Yeah. so see I I think he's looking at that from the the wrong way Yeah. and it's a shame really because I would have liked to have seen a Captain America World War 2 story by Garth Ennis Yeah. just to see what he did with it but I don't suppose we'll ever get that anymore um, Ennis, like the other two writers i picked, has his quirks as a writer, with his humour occasionally skewing too far into the puerile, and his dislike of superheroes shines through every time he writes them. Although, interestingly, he's got a soft spot for Superman and Catwoman.
3: Catwoman. Catwoman. Well, Catwoman showed up quite a bit in Hitman. Yes, didn't um, Tommy <laughs> use his extra vision to check her out? Yeah. That... <laughs> that um... No, I, I want to say weirded me out, but confused me a little Catwoman and Hitman. Because if you look at the colouring, she's. well, black. Is she? Yeah. I don't remember. In Hitman, she is, and then is, is this not Selena Kyle? Oh, yeah, it's Selena Kyle. Maybe the colouring was just off. Might have been. I just remember him perving over her. Yeah. Which was well, great. He did that with and he did that with Wonder Woman as well, didn't in he? In the JLA and yeah. Hitman meets
1: earlier. Um, so three books tonight from a writer I consider to be one of the best in the business even lesser worked by Ennis Adventures of the Rifle Brigade I'm looking good, at you uh, normally has a moment of humour or dialogue exchange that's funny but at best the writer is capable of incredible
3: character development and even yes sensitivity you know I, I wouldn't say that Ennis is an overly great writer would you not he's written some good stories but at the same time to every preacher you have well like a rifle brigade Yeah, but when he's good, he's so good. Exactly, which is why I don't think he's a good writer, because it's very rare that he is good. I don't think it's very rare. Especially now, yes. Do you? Yes.
1: See, at the moment, I think his work on The Shadow's really, really
3: good. Well, maybe it's if he likes something, he's really good. If he doesn't, then... But you don't like the boys. I don't like so the boys. So you're saying he doesn't like the boys even though it's his thing. I'm saying he doesn't like superheroes, which is a bit odd. Seems a bit odd for
1: him to write a 70-issue series about superheroes, though. Yes.
3: See, that's always when been a, my problem when with about the boys. it's it's good. When it's about the superheroes, it's... Kind of iffy. Come on, let it go, guys. Well, the
1: wee the, the, the Huey stuff's really sweet. Yes. Which is what, it's primarily why I'm reading it. Yeah. I like the wee Huey stuff and I want to see how that turns out, mm. to be honest
3: with you. Well, it, it wasn't... Didn't he find his girlfriend cheating him or something, who was a member of the Justice...
1: No! Butcher sets it up so that he sees how she got into the Seven.
3: Yeah. But that was before they were going
1: out with other. Which was one of the reasons
3: why I didn't like it as well. But it
1: was before they were going out with each other. Yeah. And Huey, you could argue that Huey should have really said, well, this was before we even knew each other. I should be able to let this go. Yeah. But Butcher manipulated it so he... Because Butcher's so it, a
3: scumbag in huh? Yeah,
1: see, that's the ultimately the whole point of the boys, I think, is that Butcher is worse than, than the, the people, people he's fighting. hunting. Yeah. And I am interested to see what happens to him. Yeah. Because in most of Ennis' stories, despite the bleakness, people do tend to get what's coming to them. hmm if he thinks a character deserves a happy ending, he will give them one. It may not be a happy well, ending in the traditional have. sense, yeah. but he will give them a happy ending. Yes. And if he thinks they need to
3: get some kind of comeuppance, he will make sure they get it. Mm. He's actually a very moral person. So if he ends his story now with Butcher punching Hughie's head off and then recruiting nah, and remember I the retract boys. everything <laughs> I just said. Three issues tonight, then. First
1: on the docket, war stories. Which seems to be a lesser Ennis, mm. but I think he's one of the best things he's ever written, yeah. in my opinion. Well, you're more of a fan of stories, right? Yeah, that's, and I've read all eight of these. Mm. After doing this? Well, the Vertigo ones. The Vertigo but... ones, yeah. Uh, war Stories was two mini series that Ennis wrote for DC Vertigo, consisting of four double-sized issues each. Each story focused on one aspect of war. Not just World War II, there is an issue in the Spanish Civil War that was the precursor to World War II. Yeah. But m- primarily it's a World War II boob. But Ennis' prime fascination is with the heroism and the betrayals and the epic endeavours and the lesser explored adventures and unsung heroes of World War Two. Like Ennis I, and Michael just mentioned, I do have a bit of a fascination with World War II. Whereas I'm more of a Vietnam. Yeah. Which is interesting because we're nothing to do with Vietnam. No. Maybe that's why. Possibly, yeah. It's a, something you can look at as a dispassionate observer. Yeah. Because it doesn't affect your country in any way. Um... I, I like World War II from a historical standpoint it's mm. the last time Britain was truly great to yeah. be honest with you in many ways World War II crippled the country mm. and we never really recovered from it yeah. it's I'm interested in it from an emotional standpoint as growing up my nan would tell me stories of the Blitz mm. and what it was like to live through that as a child nan would have oh, been I'll about too, yeah. she'll have been about 10 then wasn't she? she was born in 29 nan yeah. so she lived about 10 years old when World War II broke out I'm, I'm interested in it in an epic tale of good versus evil, of the little man, in this case, us. Mm-hmm. And I honestly don't think we we take enough credit for this of the UK standing up to the big bully and saying no more. There are some truly epic tales of the UK and its allies standing up to the Nazi war machine that are really worth exploring. Mm. It's, it's a fascinating time period. It's not one I would want to
3: have lived through. Yes but but to sit in the comfort of not living through that and look back on it and have your nan who was who did live through it yeah tell you what
1: it was like I mean there's numerous times the UK could have fallen Hmm. there's any number of tales where we were that close to to keeling over yeah and he pushed us to our limits Uh, and I know there's a certain romanticism about what's been called the last good war but when there are such things as good well that's why I'm good in speech Mark yeah um, but when your own grandmother tells you tales of cramped bunkers yeah. and the horrifying sounds of sirens filling the air and deaths all around you, war doesn't seem quite that romantic.
3: It's still left its mark, isn't there? Bits left all destroyed, purposely left destroyed. Yeah, and like as monuments Mount to the, the dead. Yeah,
1: it. there's still places where there are plaques for World War II. Um, to this end, whilst they enjoyed UK comics such as Battle in Action, with the bleak tales of heroism and during-do, but always tempered with cynicism and a gritty realism. I never really got into the US counterparts like Sergeant Rock and GI Combat. Mm. Luke Giaconetti, hello Luke, could probably argue this point, but those stories always seemed more fantastical than their UK counterparts. Um, I don't know whether that stems from the fact that we had to live with strafing and bombing, Mm. and therefore war was a much bleaker prospect. But it's an opinion I've changed in recent years... ...because I'm adoring the recent Sergeant Fury... ...and his Howling Commandos essential. Yeah. But as a kid and into my teens... ...I preferred grittier war stories. It's not I didn't enjoy Were Eagles Do... Mm. ...but sometimes I wanted the Dam Busters. Um, to that end... ...these collection of stories by Ennis... ...are right in my wheelhouse. Every issue was drawn by a different artist... ...and every issue focused on a little known... ...facet of the war. For this show... I've picked War Stories D-Day Dodgers, because interestingly, none of the issues have numbers on them, merely being listed by the title, so you can read them in any order you want. Mm -hmm. Each is a self-contained story, it doesn't matter how you read them. So if you've only got one issue, or if you've only got all of them, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. They're all self-contained within the one story. And there's no even little cute crossover bits, like our character will
3: appear somewhere else. There's none of that. They're self-contained stories. Is it not one of those things where it's better if you read them in chronological order? No, it doesn't matter.
1: Doesn't matter at all. The cover is an actual photograph from the Imperial War Museum, but touched up and played with by John Van Fleet. The issue was written by Garth Ennis without by John Higgins. Higgins was a UK artist who did a lot of work for Marvel UK, including some covers for the Star Wars comics when it went monthly and more classy, including a simply gorgeous image of Indiana Jones when that book started being a backup strip in the Star Wars monthly. The book was coloured by Pamela Rambo. And if anyone was ever named so perfectly to be in a Garth Ennis comic, it's somebody with the name Rambo. Mm. Uh, Lettered by Clem Robbins, edited by Tony Bedard and Will Dennis, with assists by Axel Alonso. It came out on October 31st, 2001. On the 3rd of September 1943, on the beaches of Reggio Calabria, the ramps on the landing craft slammed down and the boys went back to work. They were English and Irish, Scots and Canadian. There were Americans among them and Australians and Poles and Moroccans and French and New Zealanders and Indians and South Africans and later Brazilians. And they fought their way up Italy for 20 long and unexpected months. They were bound for Germany in the north, Germany by Rimini and Anzio and the Gothic line and a place called Monte Cassino. Germany with nothing but the panzers and the and the ridges and the valleys and mountains of Italy to stop them. What could have taken them so long? They were still hard at it when the Second Front began, and all eyes turned to the Great Crusade in the West, and their commanders thinned their ranks to send men and guns and tanks to France. They soldiered on, forgotten for the most part, while other Allied armies inched forward towards the Rhine, and the vengeful Russian behemoth drew ever nearer to Berlin. Their lot was blood and dust and snow and mud, and nasty little spring mines rigged amongst the olive groves, and when they were remembered, it was not always as they might have hoped day Dodgers. September 1944. Second Lieutenant Ross arrives at San Canetto, and he apologise for butchering these Italian names where he learns his posting was just yesterday strafed by the Jerry's, leaving the Major dead and Captain Lovett left in charge. Ross finds Lovett in the remains of the church shooting at a crucifix. Lovett informs him he's got four platoons. Ross reports to Sergeant Major Dunn, and pretty soon they are on a nighttime raid to find and capture a German soldier to interrogate him for information. On the way, a squaddy steps on a landmine, leaving them open to panzer grenade fire. 4th platoon react quickly, taking out the enemy soldiers, but capturing one as per their orders. With the all clear given, 4th platoon move out, but Ross shoots and kills a German soldier as he comes at them. Ross is shell-shocked when he learns the soldier was unarmed. At briefing, 4 Platoon are informed that San Carreto is to be handed over to the Canadians and they are to press forward in an unprecedented daylight brigade attack. Lovett quickly realises that with an advance across open ground in broad daylight, they'll be cut down before they've gone 10 yards if the desert Air Force fighter bombers don't friendly fire them. Even the prospects of a promotion can't hide that this is a suicide mission. When pressed, it's revealed that with a full moon for the next few nights, and then the promise of rain turning the landscape into one big mudslide, this is the last chance to advance and get headlines. With the eyes of the war turning towards Eisenhower and his liberation of France, the Italian offensive has suffered drastic cuts, and will hopefully draw eyes and more importantly funding to this part of the war effort. Feeling pretty put on the mood of four platoon is not enhanced by news that Lady Astor has stood up in Parliament and called the Italian front a bunch of D-Day dodgers, taking it easily in Italy, while the real fighting is in France. This does not go down well, with would Later, Ross tracks him down in the church, drinking and wondering how he can ask men to risk their lives for that ungrateful bitch back home. Lovett it is his lowest, and Ross is able to help him realise that it doesn't matter that the reality of war is significantly different to the image of war. They'll be judged either way. The next day, the platoon is ready. Ross hasn't pulled a Thompson, only a revolver from the armoury, and Captain Lovett gives him his. The platoon marches. Uh, The issue closes with the ballad of the D-Day Dodgers which is credited to Anonymous so nobody ever found out who wrote it so I'm going to play that for you right now where
2: the D-Day Dodgers out in italy always on the vino always on the spree eight Army's scroungers and their tanks we live in rome among the yanks we are the d-day dodgers way out in italy we landed at Salerno, a holiday with pay. The Cherries got their bands out to greet us on the way, showed us the sights, they gave us tea. We all sang songs, the beer was free, to welcome D-Day Dodgers to sunny Italy. Naples and Casino were taken in our stride We didn't go to fight there, just went for the ride Anzio and Sangro were just names We only went to look for dames The artful D-Day Dodgers way out in Italy Dear Lady Astor, think you know a lot Standing on your platform, talking Tommy Rot You England sweetheart and upright We think your mouth too bloody white That's from the D-Day Dodgers Way out in Italy Look around the mountains In the mud and rain See the scattered crosses Some which have no name Heartbreak and toil Suffering gone The boys beneath them linger on They are the D-Day Dodgers who stay in Italy
1: The issue ends with another crawl. Exactly who wrote the ballad of the D-Day Dodgers remains a mystery to this day. After the war, Lady Astor claimed never to have made the speech in question. Almost 100,000 Allied soldiers were killed or wounded in the Italian campaign. Their comrades were still on Italian soil when the war was won on May the 7th, 1945. Um, Italy's role in the war was a complex one, but in a nutshell. In 1936, Mussolini formed an alliance with Germany. And in 1943, the Allies agreed that taking back Italy was supremely important to the war effort. With Mussolini taken down, Italy joined the Allies and declared war on Germany. So that's basically the backstory. Which isn't really mentioned in the issue, is it? No. But it's not really important. Not really. To be honest with you, you don't... They're here, this is what they're doing. Yeah, that's pretty much all you need to know. Uh, Page one. As usual with Ennis, it's the characters that draw you into the story. Ross is depicted as a bit of a stiff, upper lip British soldier that initially the squaddies don't trust, but by and large they realise that he's exactly the same crap that they are and his loyal personality wins them over. Here, on the first page, we see him hoodwinked out of a few bottles of whiskey Mm. in a funny introductory scene that shows how naive this soldier still is. The art's lovely throughout, isn't it? I yeah. really like the artwork in this. John Higgins did a superlative job. Um, there's a wonderful mishmash of accents yes. throughout the entire book, did you think? I like the Aberdeen one. Did you? But I'm from Aberdeen. But I'm Aberdeen. from Aberdeen. Um, similar to Irving Welsh's Trainspotting. Yeah. Have you ever tried reading Trainspotting? Um Reading it? Yeah, the book that uh, the film no. is based upon. You, it's written in Scottish. Okay, all of it. Phonetically. Right. And to read it, you have to read it with a Scottish
3: accent, fair enough, to
1: make it make sense. <laughs> um, it's you really good. Hmm? Do we
3: have that? No, I
1: borrowed it off Adam of Oh, Okay.
3: Um,
1: I'm not going to attempt the accents in this one
3: because
1: mm. that would just be ridiculous. Uh, Captain Lovett is damaged goods from his introduction on page five. A very complex. Oh, there's an advert for Small Villa you would have thought that show would have run for ten years um, a very complex and deep man of faith who's had that faith sorely tested by the war interestingly he still doesn't consider himself an atheist rather just an extremely disappointed catholic which I thought was pretty
3: hilarious did ya? I thought it made sense. That, okay, maybe everyone's supposed to find it hilarious. It's just like, I'm not an atheist. I'm just an extremely disappointed cat. It is a very funny line.
1: Yeah. I'll give you that. But I, I found it interesting that even with all he's seen... He still has faith. Yeah. He's still got a tiny little bit of faith. Mm. Which I liked. I don't know why. I just liked it. Um, the dialogue on pages five through eight is lovely. And also sets up the relationship between these two men. Given the page count... don't really get a lot of time together three scenes all told but each one of them furthers the relationship between the two I also like that it's the posh officer who feels ill at ease giving orders and love it asking him how he'll feel after ordering a few men to die love it has little time for Oxford garage and his very battle hardened and cynical character but not in a two-fisted way he's a tragic character ultimately but you can understand why his men fight for him and follow him yeah I quite I, he is You don't want to say a more realistic Sergeant Fury. But that's kinda of what he is, isn't it? If Sergeant Fury was real. Yeah. Sergeant Fury would never get this down. Hmm. Except maybe in the Ennis mini series that he's writing at oh, the moment. I've not read I've not read the second one, but the first one was brilliant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sergeant Fury
3: nailing Asian hookers. I I I, I didn't like that one already. Did you know? Finish it, Max. Now. Maybe you'd like it a bit more later. Um,
1: Page seventeen. As with all of Ennis's work, the violence isn't glorified, and he has said in interviews that he finds the kind of sanitised violence of many TV shows to be far more offensive than realistic depictions of violence. Um, It's a valid point. Mm. And the violence, as usual.
3: Okay. Well, um, the p- page seventeen, the shot of the dying burnt man. The guy who really, stood on the mine really creeps me out. Yeah, it's it's
1: interesting that he stays stood up. As yeah, that blows up. Yeah, before he collapses and falls over. And um, yeah, it is it is pretty horrific. And then pages eighteen through twenty-two, as in real life. The violence is sudden and over with quickly. Four platoon makes short work of the panzers that are attacking them using bayonets and quick bursts of fire. But not without taking a few hits themselves. Ross's actions in Saving Sergeant Dunn are quick and he's stunned when he learns the German soldier was unarmed. Which is another really human moment. The implication being that Ross has never killed anyone before. And this isn't really how he wanted it to go. Page 26. You're going to be a major I'm going to be a corpse. Was um, hysterical. I actually laughed out loud. At that. But I laugh out loud at a lot of Ennis' comics. You do. There's a very thin vein of black humour yeah. running through pretty much everything you write, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, there's normally a funny bit. And Love It instantly knows that they're not coming back from this one. Another excellently written page with realistic dialogue and wonderful Dark humour, where he talks about the fact that they need headlines to get some funding, yeah, because it's all going on um, what's going on in France. Uh, page twenty-eight, the talk about Lady Astor, who basically accused all the soldiers in Italy of avoiding the real war, yeah, in Italy, while the real fighting was going on in France. Um, was born in America but emigrated to Britain, where she rose in the aristocracy to become the first female Conservative MP. Allegations of Nazi sympathising followed her, although they were never substantiated. She later denied making the D-Day Dodgers comments. Did they not keep records of what was said in the Houses of Parliament at that point? I have no idea. It sounds like a typical thing an MP would say, though. And it does sound like a typical thing an MP would do, doesn't it? I I never said that. (laughs) Actually, we have records of you saying... I never said it. Um... The dialogue on the four pages where Smith tells Ross about Astor's comments are really well written. Mm. And he finds humour in it where he makes it's such an obvious gag, the guy with the cup of tea.
0: Yeah.
1: And he asks him what time it is, and as he turns his watch he pours the tea all over him. Which is <laughs> 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 That's
3: so obvious a joke, but very, very funny. Yeah. That page thirty panel six made me laugh out loud. I, mean, um, I, I wonder if uh, oh, a bit yeah. about
1: this. <laughs> and, and his reaction.
3: <laughs> yeah. Which we're
1: not going to repeat on a family show. But I, I, you know what I laughed about? His response to that. Do you yep. know, sir? I think he might have. <laughs> Amused me no <to> end. <laughs> it was very, very funny. Um, page 32. Sergeant Major Dunn's writing a letter home to his wife or girlfriend. But it's not. Expand upon no you just it's his reaction to Astor's comments are wonderfully
3: played and that's it it's, you don't see anything more of it he was writing this letter we don't need to know anymore it's a bit more of a kick in the face when you realise that tomorrow he didn't get a chance to send the letter he may have done you never know he may have got the letter off tonight yeah. if he was lucky Page
1: 34 uh, and pages 36 through 38 the scene where Ross and Lovett reach an agreement is likewise extremely well written and it's followed up by a lovely scene on page 42 where Lovett gives Ross his Thompson machine gun knowing full well that nobody's coming back from this alive he's no use of it yeah because he knows what difference is it going to make Ross is on the front line he'll get better use out of a Thompson machine gun than he will Um, page 10 Dunn's inspiring speech about it's as Ulstermen you'll live for and if necessary die is great it's a really really inspiring speech underscored by a typically Ennis moment of black humour when Jock points out I'm from Aberdeen <laughs> that was funny yeah and he's just like shut up <laughs> that's not the point <laughs> just accept it and then the final ten pages underscored by one of the bitterest and most cynical war songs ever written the ballad of the D-Day Georges, which you heard a couple of
3: minutes ago. is um, I like how it goes straight from the beginning of the battle straight to the end. You don't see the battle. No, you don't need to. You
1: don't see that. You just see that none of them made it out alive. Um, it's a wonderful little story. If you've not read war stories, track it down. I don't know what these go for on the back issue market. It was both series were published as a single trade pair, as two Tread Paperbacks mm. a Tread Paperback for each limited series I don't know if they're still in print but this was a wonderful little story as with most of Ennis' war stories he shines a light on a little known or forgotten part of history and gives some brave soldiers their long overdue day in the sun the dialogue is cracking throughout with Ennis's deft blend of black humour and caustic wit present alongside his ability to create excellent characters with only a few lines the art is fantastic um, with each character designed so that identifiable right to the end. Speaking of the end is very reminiscent of the final scenes of Blackadder Goes Forth which in its final moments eschewed humour, incidental music and dialogue to fade to a wonderful final shot of the cast disappearing over the hill in freeze frame before fading into a shot of England's green and present lands free because of the sacrifice of soldiers All of them are worth hunting down, either in trade or in issues. This one, I felt, was particularly memorable with its themes of forgotten heroes and political shenanigans still being relevant to this day. Um, For the first series, it was a toss-up between this and Screaming Eagles. Which was that? Screaming Eagles was the one with the US soldiers who were sent by the commanding officers to a nearby German house to scout it out and it turned out that it was a German commandant's office. I remember that With
3: one. gold and yeah. fancy
1: paintings, expensive
3: artwork. Doesn't one of the soldiers gets it off with a the woman? Who they works, all do. I mean, there's a yeah. bunch of
1: girls next door that they rope in and there's, there's cellars full of wine yeah. and a fleet of expensive cars. And then cars. all the Germans
3: come back. Uh, no, the Americans show up Oh right, yeah, don't
1: they? And they get berated for spending the weekend having fun. Yeah, and the only reason I didn't pick Screaming Eagles over this one was Screaming Eagles is more of a romp,
3: which is and, not to say not a story. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: not to say it doesn't have its fun moments and its serious moments because it does. Mm. But this, I thought this one more encapsulates what he was trying to do. It's a good story with good themes. This is the kind of thing that should be on the list of best comics ever. Mm. Rather than the tired same old list of Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and Killing Joke. Yeah. Let's next time you do a top ten list actually list some us. more comics. Yeah, get rid of them. Do not include those three books. Yes. And let's champion other comics that are just as worthy mm. but may not necessarily make these lists. And this would be my pick. Garth Ennis' War Stories deserves to be on the list of top ten best comics ever
3: written. Discuss. But then you'd have Preacher in, though. I would have ben Preacher. As a title.
1: Well, see, it depends. I, I, if if you're looking at the best comics ever, to be able to give to people who don't read comics and don't know about comics... Then Preacher. No, I would go with War Stories before i go with Preacher. And then I would say, right, if you liked
3: these, here's this extended narrative that you will probably also like. Yeah, but this, like say, like, Preacher... Uh, along with Why the Last Man and Sandman are your relationship comics yeah yeah
1: yeah no I'd still go with war stories okay just because I think it works as better as one off stories I'd give this to my granddad to read I yeah. even suggested to your brother why don't you read it and he said what for I've got to call a call of duty which just <laughs> makes just makes me despair for the younger
3: generation <laughs> did he actually say yeah <laughs> what he actually <laughs> said <laughs> That's pretty hilarious, actually.
1: Um, Ennis returns to these themes in Battlefields, published by Dynamite, which I didn't even know about Hmm. until doing the research for this, so those two trades on my Christmas list. He's doing a lot of it for Dynamite now. He doesn't seem to be doing anything for Marvel and DC anymore, does he? He's doing the Fury Max miniseries at the moment. I I don't don't think
3: he likes DC.
1: He does seem to have had a bit of a
3: falling out with DC. No one likes DC, though. Well, the people who work for them obviously do. Well, no, people have left them. Yeah. No one's liking DC at the moment. Ennis, Garth Ennis in particular.
1: Uh, does Ennis's dislike of DC stem back to them? I don't want to say dislike. Go back to the Max in The Boys by Paul Levitt. <laughs> Could have. Because there is mention made in... I can't remember if it's a... Pre- oh, you know what it's in? Mm-hmm. In that book, the comics writers... yeah. On comic script writing, there's an interview with Garth Ennis. And he says that there is a... He doesn't mention his name, Hmm. but he says there is a notable DC executive who's read the first 17 issues of Preacher in one go. Hmm. And he has said that if he'd been aware of what was being in the comic from the beginning, it wouldn't have been in it. So I, I think Paul Levitt's had something... Because I think it was Levitts. Yeah. Alleged. I, I can't prove that, but my thinking is it was Levitts. Mm-hmm. And I think
3: it was maybe between the two of them. He doesn't necessarily like and, what yeah. Garth writes. So they refuse to print the boys, and yet you pick up any number of contemporary comics DC releasing at the moment. Oh, look, sex on a rooftop. Oh, look, Joker's face. Oh, look. It's not quite as in-your-face as the boys. Well, no. Let's face
1: it. Wonder Woman. And this bit may not be suitable for young ears. I'm just warning you, dull it down if you've got kids <laughs> listening, and come back in about two minutes. Wonder Woman did not get into the Justice League by performing fellatio on Superman and Batman. Oh, no. Did you? <laughs> so the boys is a bit more in your quite literally in that case. Yeah. You can bring the little ones back now.
3: So... But it's still... Similar things as to what Marvel appreciate. I was, was to listening to I was. was listening to just one of the guys this week, which yeah. is
1: a Green Lantern podcast posted by the mighty Sean Engel. Hi, Sean, mm. and he had Thomas DJ on it, and they were having a discussion in that show, irrelevant to what they were actually talking about. Yeah. Whereas they actually said Dan DiDio has boasted that he's made DC Comics more mature than ever but As he's not if, if this is exactly what it was either Thomas or Sean I can't remember which one it was if anything so I not made it more childish Th- that is exactly the point he's confusing mature with adult yeah or the other way around I can't remember exactly what they said and mature storytelling is what we've just done with war stories. Mm. Yes, there's swearing in it. Yes, there's a whole heap of violence in it. Mm. It is not a kid's story. It's an adult story. A lot of what's going on in the DC books at the moment... By And you're 17, Neely. Yeah. So... Or will be, by the time this goes up. Mm. So confusing. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey yeah. stuff. And you think some of that is snigger-worthy, don't you? Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that they're doing. Some of the tits and ass that they keep doing. Mm. And you're very... <laughs> with a lot of it yeah just looking at the cover for this
3: Catwoman isn't they've they? changed it for Catwoman Zero yeah, I know they've, they've buckled to pressure and changed that cover it's still very very much a back breaking yeah it's still do. as again as in
1: just one of the guys as Sean or Thomas put it how can we get her breasts and her arse
3: in the same shot
1: yeah. called Ed Bennis <laughs> which I thought was very funny
3: someone wrote an essay yes um, to do with um, how genders are displayed in comic books and she, she wrote that all male comic book characters and superheroes all look like athletes and all women look like porn, look like porn stars, stars right? yeah yeah
1: see and they didn't used to Gwen and Mary Jane didn't look like porn stars when John Romita drew
3: them mm. they still look gorgeous Yeah. but they didn't look like porn stars did you have this conversation about the Incredibles and films like Saw and Hostel. Yeah, I think that The
1: Incredibles is a much more mature film than Hostel. Yeah. Which is torture porn.
0: Hmm. But
1: only one of them's an 18 certificate. Yeah. But The Incredibles has some incredibly on-the-nose things to say about being married and having children. Hmm. that as an adult watching that film you can watch and go <laughs> yeah that's so accurate but as a kid you're watching Dash run really really fast and get flies all over his face Yeah, and that's why Pixar at its best is arguably more adult, more than... adult and mature than yeah. a lot of films that are produced with 18 certificates Hostel's just a romp mm-hmm. and quite sick in places Whereas The Incredibles is incredibly mature storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, it's something the entire family can watch and thoroughly enjoy. Mm. But anyway, we we went a bit off topic though, didn't we? Um, With all apologies to the lovely Dave Walker. Hi, Dave. Uh, No Garth Ennis celebration would be complete without an issue of what I consider to be his magnum opus. Preacher. Issue 18 came out on August 7th, 1996 with a superlative cover by Glenn Fabre, Or superlative, I should say. Of a man who looks very much like Jesse Custer. Holding up a Zippo lighter, his face reflected in it, whilst around him the Vietnam War rages. It is Jesse.
3: It is. His dad looks exactly like Jesse. No, but it is Jesse. It's his dad. It's not, it's Jesse. There's his little white collar. Are you sure?
1: Yeah, so it's a symbolic cover of Jesse looking into the lighter, but as though he was his as dad. though he was his dad. Yeah. All right, fair enough. I'll go with that. That's how I looked at it. Anyway, no, that's fair. That's a valid interpretation. It's yeah. just as valid as that's his dad, because they do make a plot point in the series, don't they, of how much he looks like his father with the spaceman yeah. Yeah. And not just that, but in the, the story art before this. Yeah. Which hopefully Michael Bailey and I will talk about at some point in the near future. Mm-hmm. They do make a point of talking about how much he reminds them both facially yeah. and in terms of attitude of his dad. Mm. So, yeah, no, your interpretation of it is valid. It does look like his dog cut. See, I just saw it as being the edge of the lighter.
0: Yeah. But no, that's
1: fair enough. If you think that's Jesse and it's a symbolic cover, I'm down with that. No, no, that's perfectly valid. Uh, cover dated October 96, Texas and the Spaceman, was written by Garth Ennis with art by Steve Dillon. Uh, Matt Hollingsworth was the colourist, Clem Robbins, the letter, and Axel Alonso, the editor. On a two-hour stop over at JFK, Jesse Custer coincidentally meets up with Billy Baker, an old friend of his father's from Vietnam, after both realise they have the same engraving on their Zippo lighters. <phone rings> Communism. <laughs> I
3: was going to say, how are going to get
1: away with I'll that? I'll bleep it. <laughs> right. Billy shows Jesse a picture of he and his dad and tells Jesse about no how he and Jesse's father, John Custer, both served on the day John Wayne came to visit the platoon and gave them those lighters. Billy says that he always wanted to be an astronaut, so they called him Spaceman, and John, who was from Texas, was called, well, Texas. That night, they were larking around on watch when Goni Goring, so-called after the gonorrhea he had, was lighting his farts, <laughs> and John and Billy both discussing the first John Wayne films they ever saw as the Kong launch a minor attack. Nothing too serious. And the next day, while cleaning up, Gunnar Murphy winds John up that Wayne's real name was Marion and finds himself laid out with a busted nose for his troubles. Murphy, however, has connections and Goni, Spaceman and Texas find themselves cleaning out latrines and Gonny spends most of the time throwing up. The next day an operation goes south leaving Gonnie, Murphy, John and Billy alongside Lieutenant Van Patten alone. Van Patten is from a rich family with something to prove and both Billy and John feel he's dangerous for that reason. Sure enough, his keen map reading skills lead them straight into a village not on the map or not where he was looking at the map anyway and John, Billy and Gonny are ordered to clear it out. John pleads with Murphy to let Gonny stay with them but Murphy repeats his orders while clearing out the camp the threesome come across a Vietnamese grandmother and as Gonny goes in she pulls a grenade blowing both of them sky high covered in bits of Gonnie, John snaps and heads off to turn Murphy in half Billy stops him saying now ain't the time Two weeks later, the time comes. Van Patten is taken out by sniper fire and, without him to hide behind, Murphy is attacked by John and Billy whilst relieving himself, stuffed into a latrine barrel and sent rolling down the hill at Charlie. Billy tells Jesse, that's how it was. You looked out for each other because no one else was doing it for you. And when you got home and found out the politicians had moved on to other concerned and how so many people don't realise how good they got it, you think, what was it all for? The tannoy announces Jesse's flat and Jesse goes to give the photo back that Billy had of his dad. Billy says he can keep it. The issue ends with a quote from an anonymous US serviceman quoted in the Nam* by Mark Baker. Thinking about Vietnam once in a while in a crazy kind of way, I wish that just for a while I could be there and then be transported back. Maybe just be there so that I wish I was back here again. Um, page one. Jesse's lighter will go through the entire series with him.
3: Yeah. Did he have it from the start or did he pick it up at his old family?
1: I can't remember if he picked it up in
3: the all-in-the-family yeah, story didn't, arc. Yeah, didn't one of them... Did um, T.C. 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 or Jodie have it? Jodie had it. Did he? He had to beat him up to, get, to it. get it back. As some sort of deeming himself worthy trial. Yeah. Yeah. And he, sticks, he keeps it with it for the rest of the series, doesn't mm. he? It even worked its way into Why the Last Man. Yes, it did. um, Yorick engraved the words into it because of a graphic normally read in high school. Yorick and 355 then have a discussion about swearing in comics whilst they swear in a comic. (laughs) Yes,
1: I remember that. He has... um, I think we got away with it once. (laughs) But we won't say it again. He has that engraved upon his zipper lighter in Why the Last Man. Uh, Page three. Did you not think it a bit odd that Billy carried around a picture... Of um, him in the Vietnam War with his two buddies in his top. Oh, it's in his wallet.
3: Yeah. But it's it's still not as strange as how space keeps showing up at all these places. Like there's an issue later on where he expands on Vietnam where they both meet at a wall a war rem- memorial. Do they? Yeah. I've forgotten that one. He's in Washington. And he's at the war memorial and, and space Man's just there. shows up. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I'd completely forgotten that. Yeah. I need to reread re- this. Just two Vietnam
1: issues we should have done another one as well oh, I don't think of that maybe next time um, John Rambo does this in First Blood yeah he's got a picture in his wallet of his Vietnam buddy. so maybe, it's, maybe it was the norm yeah. I don't know um, page four is essentially the, plas- the splash page to the issue I think it's a wonderful shot of a Huey helicopter coming in low over the heads of the US troops the faces of the troops are all in shadow the sky's a lovely orange hue it's simply gorgeous T- I think that's
3: really yeah. good. See, this this is where Fortunate Son kicks in. Uh, page five through seven.
1: John Wayne, he did actually visit American troops in Nairn on a tour starting in June of 1966. So that gives us an approximate date for this story. Um, I presume they didn't have the rights to John Wayne's likeness, mm.
3: given that you never actually see his face. But even though he is a central main character to the booth. Yes, he is. So they didn't have the rights to John Wayne but they did have the rights for Bill Hicks Um, they did actually get in touch with
1: Bill Hicks' estate to arrange that and they gave him permission so it's entirely possible John Wayne's estate either wanted too much money or they wouldn't give permission but John Wayne is is he
3: Jesse's kind of it's his subconsciousness. He's yeah. subconscious all the way through the series, isn't he? It's like John Wayne is acting as his dad and his best friend, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's kind of like that what would Buffy do
3: thing, isn't it? What would yeah. John Wayne do? Yeah. John Wayne is, is Jesse's Buffy. But there's the best part where John Wayne just says, I can't help you from now on, you've got to make it on your own, and Jesse panics. Well, it's like
1: Obi-Wan ultimately has to leave Luke. Yeah. that's It's the the hero's journey, isn't it? Ultimately,
3: the mentor figure mm. has to get out of the way yeah. so the hero can do it what he's got to do. It comes from when he was put in the coffin and put underwater for yes. weeks at a time he just made John he Wayne he to, to John pen, Wayne to yeah. keep
1: him going because that's one of the great covers of the series isn't it John Wayne sat on the coffin underneath the water underneath yeah. the water yeah mm. ah, yes. All right, page nine for the record my favourite John Wayne movie is The Shootist
3: okay The Searchers <laughs> is very good as well <laughs> I'll a bit about the which is um, Space Fun's favourite film
1: they're not talking about favourites, they're talking about the first yeah, yeah. John Wayne film they ever the, saw. The
3: first film you saw, and um, it's like you went you went to watch that one, really? Yeah,
1: the one where he plays um, The Conqueror, where he plays Genghis Khan. Yeah. Has also been rifting
3: Farscape. The quote that they uh, say from the film I You're remember. beautiful
1: in your wrath. Yeah, John, I about
3: that. John Crichton uh,
1: has said, uh, when he's talking about John Wayne, says, Not everyone can. Everyone makes a bum movie at some point. Hmm. So. The Conqueror is obviously not viewed as a classic John Wayne <laughs> movie. For some reason. I don't know. I've never seen it. So it, it may be an undiscovered classic. I don't know. I, I like the description of Gonnie. And I like that John and Billy look after him. 'Cause he let's be honest, he's got cannon fodder written all over him from his first appearance, hasn't he? Yeah. I like the, I do like the description of him. Garney Goring was a crazy sump bitch. Ain't no other way to describe him. He was stupid and clumsy and kind of a weakling and he wouldn't have lasted a <laughs> over there if it hadn't been for one thing. He could have made you laugh at your own mama's funeral. <laughs> so me and your daddy, we liked him. We did our best to look after his dumb ass. I'll be bleeping that as well. Yeah.
3: I like where they call him gonny.
1: And because he's got gonorrhea. <laughs> oh dear me. Um Page ten, the attack on the camp is very brief. And a fine example of what these guys live with as normal. And it's just one panel. It's it just one panel. Yeah. Day. And then the next day it's it's over with and done with and they're cleaning up the camp. Um Billy's description of Murphy on page eleven. He actually says, Oh, Murphy's okay. Which seems a bit incongruous given what he and John ultimately do to him. Yeah. He's not that okay, really, is he? Not really. To be honest with you. Uh, The scene where Murphy chides John with Wayne's real name and Spaceman's face as he knows what's coming. Mm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dave. I like you, Dave. I really do. But Dylan's artwork there is brilliant. Yeah. But he's kind of doing that thing where he's got one eye closed and his facial expression he's saying oh it's all going to kick off now and um, I love that we don't actually see it Fish, the next yeah. thing we see he's laid out on the floor with his nose busted and the hospital attendant is saying what happened to him and the entire everybody thus he slept I like, I like the roll on uh, <laughs> they're all on yeah. John's side so he's obviously a notorious scumbag yeah that nobody's very fond of um, page 15 Murphy shows himself to be a right prick, ordering Gonny in to search the village when he, he can see he's not well. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I don't, he is a bit of a bonehead. Do you think that Jesse looks exactly like John so that Steve Dillon doesn't have to draw another
3: face? <laughs> You're giving Dave ammunition there. I am. That's very true.
1: I do, I do, actually, Dave's criticisms are quite valid. When you see dylan's artwork in another book yeah you do go that looks a bit like jesse custer mm. uh, that looks a bit like cassidy and so yeah, i can see his point yeah but i think in terms of just the the vietnam setting for this story everything's perfect the hueys are perfect the guns are perfect the settings are perfect i think it's great um page 16 as usual ennis's descriptive dialogue of billy worrying is wonderful that was the worst ten minutes of my life ten minutes expecting your foot to hit metal just before you fly twenty feet in the air or you trip a wire going into a hut and the last thing you hear is the pin coming out of the grenade or maybe there's a flash from the tree line and a crack and you fall down wondering why your legs quit on you just so evocative yeah that 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 word balloon and what's even better about it is it's just a panel of him drinking a beer Mm. it's not a narration over something else it's really good Preach is just awesome, isn't it? Yeah. It's just an awesome, awesome series. Um, page 17, again, the best use of violence isn't seen. We see the Vietnamese grandmother pull the pin, and then next we see Billy and John covered in her and Gony's remains. It's brutal
3: because we don't see it happen. Yeah. Well, the page 17... The, the swearing all the way through the issue ah, yes. is pretty funny page 17 is unintentionally un- un- hilarious <laughs> I don't think it's unintentionally hilarious well, I think Ennis is being deliberately
1: funny though because of the situation yeah, they're in the situation they're in and what's just happened and just the sheer amount of profanity <laughs> coming out of John Custer's mouth that's something you're not going to cross. no even with the warning <laughs> I am still trying to keep it but have a look on page 17 and read it to yourself aloud because I did that's you when you lose that burnout. Yes. <laughs> or it's me when there's a taxi in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> I do apologise for the fact you've grown up profanity late. I'm very sorry. It's okay. But I'm British, so so the profanity sounds classic. Yeah. If nothing else. <laughs> um, page 18. By contrast, Van Patten's death is on camera. Yeah. And uh, again, the bullet sails through the back of his head, comes out of the front of his head
3: and just destroys the front of his face. Is that not something that's intentional, though? Yeah. You don't see Goni's death because you like Goni, you see his death, though, because you never were meant to like him.
1: No, I get the feeling, just um, the sheer randomness of his being shot by a sniper. Yeah. I like why he gets shot by a sniper. Yeah, because he wouldn't take his rank bars off and they glint. In the sunlight, and he just they picked him off because of it, and it was set up that that would happen at the beginning of the issue. Yeah. So it wasn't a big surprise when it happened. Uh, page nineteen through twenty-one. Uh, Billy and John stuff Murphy in the latrine barrel after he's relieving himself with a copy of Playboy. Mm. So he's not just relieving himself on the toilet; he's getting off while he's yeah.
3: He is as well. Look at the
1: hand. Yes, look where the hand is. Yeah. And that's actually quite subtle. Mm. You have to be paying attention though, to what he's doing, yeah. But the, it's all in the artwork. Um, they stuff him in the latrine barrel with all the cack and excrement, and roll him down the hill in it to the Viet Cong, who just shoot the barrel to pieces.
3: And it's funny but horrific at the same it, time. At the same time, it kind of <laughs> kind of lost respect, whatever, for John. Because even though this part has the message behind it, it's still... You don't think you should have done that
1: yeah to another to a fellow officer?
3: Yeah. But he got gone, he killed. He did. But he second-handedly killed him. John... Deliberately yeah. killed him. Alright, fair enough, I see what you're saying. Um... It's an exceptionally good
1: issue, though, isn't it? Yeah. In many ways, prefiguring war stories that Ennis would tell later. Because The two Vietnam
3: ones are very good.
1: Um, yeah, it's it's a little respite in do, between story arcs. You make
3: arcs. you forget that, the fillings, probably. It's, it's not a filling, well, cause it's the same creative team. Yes,
1: but... And John's dad is integral to the story, mm. in many ways. Um, the series had just concluded one big story arc, one of its most demented
3: story arcs all in the family. Was that... The one with Geordie and TC when they go back to they go back home. Yeah, but he's he's left Tulip and on his way to was he on his way to here? The next
1: story out was Crusaders
3: with her star. Yeah, I can't. So is that after the the, the weird party with his my funny bit with Tulip and the fat woman with the cucumber in the it toilet? Maybe yeah. I don't remember. I know what you. I know what you're going. Isn't this there. the first time he leaves Tulip? I think so. Right. It's the first time he's left Tulip behind.
1: Um, So so this little interlude was a nice break. As usual for Ennis, war stories, this isn't so much about the war itself as the people involved in it, and it isn't so much a story, really, Mm. as a little slice of life, but it does much to flesh out John's dad after the last story arc and set up his character and his similarities, not just in looks, to Jesse. Ennis never depicts epoch-making events john and billy weren't in any big historically important battle here just everyday people in what was for them everyday situations steve Dillon's art again apologies dave i'm very sorry but i think the art in this issue is superlative attention to detail being a paramount import in a historical story like this one um creature was his highest
3: uh wise steve dylan yeah well, that's what i'm saying This is a high watermark for everyone who worked on it. Hellblazer was him getting there, but still quite scratchy. This is where it was very stylised and at its peak. And
1: Glenn Fabry did the covers for Hellblazer as well. Yeah. So they were laying the groundwork for Preacher. Hmm. And I don't think Glenn Fabry's work has ever been as good as it was on Preacher. Yeah. And even those, a couple of times, had problems with it. Hmm. Tulip never looked the same from cover to cover. Yeah.
3: But... My, my favourite ones are the Alamo covers. Just the close-ups of the faces? Yes, because if you look at all of them and they're all very... Ooh, that looks ugly. Ooh, that's an ugly hand. Ooh, that's an ugly face. But then those final six covers, every one of them is perfectly really coloured, good. Really yeah. good.
1: I think Preacher is a book with everybody firing on all cylinders. Yeah. The editorial apparently just left him alone to tell the story he wanted to tell. Which is for the better. And by all accounts... Axel Alonso who edited this took and was it Axel and Stuart Moore I think it was Axel Alonso wasn't it yeah and and Stuart Moore was something to do with it at some point apparently they took all of the flack for anything that they ever got in trouble for on this Hmm. and Garth has said that he only found out about an awful lot of it after the book was finished so we had no idea that no, they were no had the blame. no idea that they were getting all the grief hmm. they took it as his editors that was pretty nice because I, they so? considered it their job to protect him yeah. and the story he wanted to tell but he wouldn't see or doing that uh, well I don't know he may do but it's to me this is what Vertigo should always have been it, 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 it does benefit from not being yeah. edited this, he has said that interviewing comic writers on script writing is very good. Yeah. He does talk about there were a few things they didn't know they could get away with. Like, there's a scene where, I can't remember which issue it's in, but Jesse pees on a clan gathering where they're burning a cross. Yeah. And Axel said to him, I'm not censoring what you're doing here. I'm just but, advising. Yeah, but here. ultimately, when Jesse's finished peeing, he's peeing on the cross. All right. It doesn't matter what his original goal was. He is now peeing on a religious icon, Mm. and Garth was right. Okay, how can we do it in such a way that it's not offensive? Was he peeing on it to set the fire out? Yes, he's peeing on it to set the fire out and to annoy the clan. If you remember, but Axel pointed out that it could. All it needed was one news station to take the final panel where he's peeing on a crucifix out of context. context, And splatter it all over the news. Yeah. (coughs) And he said, by and large, they were the only times they censored themselves. And they didn't censor it, they found a way around it. Yeah. Ultimately, I think Preacher's awesome. I can't say enough good things about Preacher. Mm. Uh, If you've never
3: read it, do yourself a favour and go out and buy it. It, it, Support that kind of comic book. It it doesn't need them, but I think it's enhanced with reading the tie Italians. The spin-off. Yes, I'm and not saying none of it's irrelevant. Hellblazer as well. Say the Killers. Yeah, I think Hellblazer is a good setup to Preacher, even though it's nothing to do with it. It is though. It isn't. And, also, and this has said it's nothing to do with it. But it
1: really is. It's nothing to do with it.
3: But it is. No, it isn't. The themes of it. And no, it isn't because Preacher is creator-owned and Hell. Well, and if he so says, even though it is, but if can't he say says it
1: Hellblazer. Is. It has anything to do with preacher? preacher and DC then. own preacher. Yeah, but so it does have anything to do with Hellblazer? They
3: are the same thematically.
1: It may be very similar,
3: right? Okay. And the preacher. stuff with the
1: angels may be identical, <laughs> but Hellblazer has nothing to do with
3: preacher. So preacher, which is not an entity <laughs> that's created by a demon and an angel making a baby, is nothing to do no. with Hellblazer. or no. an angel and a demon no. make a baby. No, it's completely <laughs> different. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, that's, I think that's a fair
1: comment. He's protecting his own investment, though. Even if the other yeah, you know. if Preacher gets turned into a film, Garth and Steve Dillon will get money. Mm. I presume DC Vertigo will get
3: some money. Let's hope they just don't do a film, though.
1: <laughs> See, on the one hand, Preacher would transplant perfectly as a TV show.
3: You've but got sixty-six film.
1: perfect issues there that you, you could film Preacher. You give issue those comics, by issue. Yeah, you give those comics to a director. You don't bother with a writer. You give those comics to a director and you You've say, "Already got your script film written." that. Yeah. Those are your storyboards. Mm. Go out and cast it. Film it. And as an HBO show, I think it would work incredibly well. Mm. I don't want them to do a Walking Dead with preacher. Where they take the idea and tell different stories. Mm. If you're going to do preacher, I want the most faithful comic book adaptation that has ever, ever been committed to celluloid. Yeah. If you don't take that comic and film it word for word I will find you. <laughs> it's that simple. You've already got your scripts and your story but... Yes, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You give that book to a director and you said, there you go, film that, bye. Yeah. Here's a million dollars, 12 episodes a season, runs for five years, whatever, make it so. Okay. You may have to do some restructuring because one issue of a
3: comic probably isn't 45 minutes of television time. That and the whole Root Junior bit. No, what? Well, because I think that's a very definite sign of the times with it being. So if you take uh if you take <laughs> Root Junior, Root Junior, <laughs> out of it. Maybe not out of it. but you have to rewrite the bit later on where he starts his band.
0: Because, why? Because
3: grunge bands aren't in anymore. Well, I think that's a sign of the times because, truthfully, they're not. No, no, they're not. Well see I don't know how you'd update that I mean you could
1: remove him there is
3: the great issue though where he sees everything as hmm. a root junior <laughs> yes and it seems like the last page is the earth oh you could just set it in 1995 yeah what's wrong with that just don't update it at
1: all no you, you set it when it was set mm. and leave it alone that's what I'd do yeah because by and large for the most part it's out in the sticks isn't it yeah so it doesn't matter when it's set small town America is small town America but then there's Paris and
3: so other Paris. places to go you
1: can still go to Paris now and it probably doesn't look that much different from 1996 suppose not maybe
3: I don't know yeah. I wouldn't I would not want it changed yeah. and if you change it you will bring down my wrath I wouldn't want it to be visualised I, I wouldn't want it to be, to you, be sure you've been very
1: vocal about the fact you don't want Preacher to go to the screen in anywhere yeah because you think it'll
3: ruin it mm. don't you with the Last Man as well yeah, like you're it. not made up with the idea of Zachary Levi no, as I like, Yorick. No, I like Zachary Levi's as Yorick. It's that Shia Booth balf poof. But I thought Zachary Levi wanted to be Yorick. He did. B- which but they want Shia Booth. Jo- yeah, who has said which really annoys me. He didn't want to do it because he sees that the character is very similar to his character in Transformers. Now, Shia, if you've actually read Why the Last Man, you would say that you are wrong. <laughs> yeah do you think Shirley Buffs read Why the Last Man probably not but I think Zachary Levi would be good if they did it I just don't want them to do it what for the same reason I don't want them to do Preacher yeah I mean see on the one hand I'd like
1: Garth and Steve Dillon to make a lot of money from it Mm because they would deserve it but on the
3: other if it isn't filmed word for word Mm. I will hunt you down and find you but then (laughs) then, you have the same problem as every other comic book thing Mm. hipsters Oh, why do you have to bring them up? <laughs> uh, because I have to put up with them in school every day and I want to punch them so hard.
1: Yes, I suppose so. I mean, again, some of Dave's criticism is valid. Goni does look a bit like Spacker Dave, <laughs> doesn't he? <laughs> so I get what Dave's saying. It's just in its own self-contained series. In Preacher, yeah. Dylan is perfect. Mm-hmm. And if I never see him draw anything else again... You and I've never to. seen him draw anything before I don't have Preacher the sixty-six issue of Preacher the 4 issue Saint the Killers miniseries he didn't do that Carlos Esquizuri did yes he did but I'm saying as an entity mm. the, the whole of Preacher is a thing of beauty mm. it is the it's a damn near perfect put in art galleries yes it's a damn near perfect example of what a comic can be yeah and it's just a damn near perfect story doesn't mm. matter what the medium yeah, preacher is marvelous. What do you think of preacher, Ange?
0: I loved
3: it.
1: There you go. Okay. What more needs to be said? Yeah. I think that closes the book on the preacher conversation. Um, we've not really touched upon the adverts this month, really, uh, other than saying preacher they really were hyping up House of Secrets, weren't they?
3: Yeah. Was that the next big thing? Probably. What happened to it? Uh, it got 21 issues. And then fizzled out. Never really got reprinted, but they're doing an omnibus this month, next month the
1: month after is a 21 issues really an omnibus I
3: don't when
1: you consider your invisibles omnibus, omnibuses how many issues a lot couldn't you could, if you did we talk about our fantastic
3: four omnibus well, could kill a vagrant if I'm stood upstairs in my bookshelf yeah. and I accidentally dropped it off my bed it will go through the floor I was going to say if you, if you dropped that invisibles
1: omnibus from a helicopter <laughs> above um, a Vietnam it will set aflame it would it would crush the entire village Smart bomb <laughs> you've just
3: weaponised a Grant
1: Morrison comic oh dear god and he's probably not for that is he no
3: anyway people eat his books so oh yeah I read that interview (laughs) the guy who hated what was it it was how Grant Morrison wrote about the Siegel Schuster Superman in Super Gods yeah which we haven't read because Grant Morrison wrote it how it was they sold Superman uh, for a small sum of money and when it took off a, and someone hated him saying that DC were paying him and he's just a company, he's a corporate lackey and a, just a company apologist and, and so he ate the book he cooked it and ate it
1: and, and, and to be fair Morrison was like a fair fur <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> fur to the man I like his comments about his poop yes
1: <laughs> I can't remember what artist it was. Yeah. Time, yeah. It must have looked like a, a Gauguin. Yeah. By the time it. You no, know, Gauguin painted nudes, didn't he?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, who's the guy who does abstract weirdness? Damn, mate. It, it wasn't. Jeez. Matisse, thank you. Yeah. It must have looked like a Matisse. <laughs> anyway, our final issue tonight. A pick that, by and large, represents the single most requested comic we get asked to cover. Yeah. Doesn't it? Hitman hopefully there's a large chunk of the audience who just went hoorah because we're covering another issue of Hitman. And another chunk going what? What's Hitman? Yeah. No everyone. <laughs> it isn't
3: a, is a game, game Yeah. You know?
1: And a film with Marky Mark in doesn't it? Yeah but it's awful and based on the game. Is it? Oh, I okay. I I've seen. So, yeah. so yeah. like that Max
3: Payne film that he did.
1: Because yeah. that's Marky Mark as well it's isn't it?
3: horrible. Is it? I've never
1: seen the Max I, Payne I've, I've
3: recently played the game again and it just makes the film so much Where did you see though. the film? Uh, Liz has it. Alright, because it has been so on TV a lot. I, I brought the game around her house when we played it. It's like, oh, this is really good. Max Payne's great. Her brother found out and gave us the film and I felt like punching the TV. Does the presence of Mila Kunis not make it more better? No. I love more better. <laughs> grammar. To speak grammar makes us good. Yes. Because the, 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 the game is very dark and it's all surreal at times as well. Because of the... the, 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 and the hallucinogenic, bullet time stuff. It's the hallucinogenic drug that yeah. makes the game very creepy and disturbing at times. Yeah? I loved Maxwell. The, the nightmare bits with these dead baby. But yeah, you're the, looking at the film and the very much literalized the fight with angels and demons to the point where there are angels and demons in it. Right.
1: You're not selling it to me. So if you want to see Marky Mark and Mila Kunis <laughs> watch Ted instead is what we're saying. Yeah anyway Hitman (laughs) as we've mentioned when we've covered before as we mentioned when we've covered this this series before Hitman Tommy Monaghan was arguably or maybe not arguably Mm. the only decent character to come out of the Bloodlines crossover event of 1993 the only one to make it name anyway yeah he quickly gained his own title at the beginning of 1996 and was rare in that a a bloodline spin-off was actually any good and b it had a beginning a middle and an end coming to a close in hitman 60 in february of 2001 although again in that interview in comics writers script writers or whatever it's called
0: yeah
1: ennis has said that hitman could have gone on for longer he said Preacher finished when Preacher was supposed to finish. Yeah. So there's no regrets with Preacher. Well, they always say from the start he had it finished. But Hitman, although the ending was what he wanted it to be, he felt it could have gone on for a few more years. Hmm. Um, he didn't say why it finished. Was it cancelled? Was sales bad? Because by and large, this seems to be an extremely fondly remembered series.
3: Yeah. I don't think it's as good as Hit Preacher. to be honest. I think it's much more sillier than when he started to go downhill as a writer. It's still very good, but is very rich whereas this is very one note I, I did find myself sighing a lot more in Hitman even did though you? I enjoyed it a lot yeah uh, okay fair enough
1: along the way there was one annual a wonderful little western pastiche called A Coffin Full of Dollars <laughs> which we almost covered
3: well yeah I'm not to the Superman annuals of them
1: Right, but so the,
3: I was thinking of reading all the ones we had because I did like the Hitman one. The
1: Hitman one was brilliant. Carlos Square did the art for that. Didn't
3: yeah, he? I read that as another issue of Preacher, really, just with just with characters. Tommy Monaghan in yeah. it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, they did a compulsory crossover with Lobo. Yeah, because that was compulsory in the nineties, wasn't Which it? Which was pretty hilarious. Have we got gouged, it.
3: Yeah, he gouged his eyes out. We have got it, haven't we? It was just an issue of Hitman. No, it was Hitman. Lobo was a one-shot special. Was it? Yeah, because didn't you like? Lobo comes in, so Hitman pokes his eyes out, runs around Ennis the block. Ennis
1: treats Lobo with the same respect that he treats all super types. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't mind with Lobo. It was pretty funny. Because he was crap. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, yes, there was a one million tie-in as well. Which was good. Which was quite good. In 2007, Ennis brought the character back for an untold tale of Monahan teaming up with the Justice League. The issue I picked tonight...
3: He was also in jail, eh?
1: Very briefly, though, and it wasn't written by Garth Ennis, was it? It was
3: Grant Morrison. Doesn't he just show up, eye up Wonder Woman and leave? Yeah, which was why, um, even though I didn't read... I've read the JLA stuff after I read Old Hitman. So I read the JLA Hitman after it. I got to the point where I was rereading JLA again and said, wait a minute, so he did what Garth Ennis did in JLA Hitman, but before Garth Ennis did it to his own character. No, he he checked out Catwoman before Grant Morrison wrote JLA. No, but he says in JLA that he only showed up just to check out Wonder Woman naked. Fair enough. And then in, in Hitman Justice League he says he only came in there to check out Wonder Woman naked. Fair enough. Yeah.
1: Maybe he wanted to see it twice. Maybe it was worth
3: it. Maybe it was so good yeah. he wanted another eye for.
1: Yeah. Because he very rarely used his superpowers, Tommy Monaghan, didn't he? he? Wasn't
3: it because he was ashamed of them or something? No,
1: it's what a kiss him. Your girl didn't you. go. <laughs> uh, anyway, the issue I picked tonight is one I feel showcases Ennis' ability to subvert the system from within. Ennis has long talked about how books in the mainstream continuity will frequently ha- be hampered by crossovers or editorially mandated character appearances. To be fair, it's a bit silly of Ennis to set his stories in Gotham City and not expect to be asked to script in an appearance by Batman or somebody else. The but first issue is about Joker and the Batman. Yeah, it's it's my opinion that if a writer is in the middle of a story arc, then they should be given the choice
3: yeah.
1: As if they, of if they want to take part that's, in some big crossover and just ignore that it. That put
3: me off with this. What? Well, because you just give me Preacher. Hmm. I was like, ah, that's very good. You said, hey, you should read Hitman. Read, read Hitman what was next. It about? Well, it's it's about a Hitman, but in Gotham City. Oh, I'll give it a try but
1: i see say I love Hitman I think Hitman's good you're right it has a lighter tone than Preacher
3: but it and still it's... is pretty gruesome and people die a lot yes but I still think because even with that it's still silly
1: yeah but there are silly moments
3: yes but life has silly moments it does but if Garth Ennis were to write life then it would have a lot more silly moments probably yeah um,
1: for this one Ennis took the ignore it completely approach Issue number eight was part of the Final Night crossover. And despite the Final Night logo being prominently featured on the cover, Ennis gives the crossover a cursory mention within and then ignores it completely. It came out on September 25th, 1996, with a cover date of late November of the same year. The cover by John McCrea shows our man, Tommy Monaghan, pointing his gun in the cold, snowy night. But before him is a ghostly image of a young boy in the same pose. The boy will turn out to be Tommy himself. It's a fine cover that does what it sets out to do, i.e. provide the cover to the comic. The nights the Lights Went Out was written by Garth Ennis, with art by John McCrea. Letters were by Willie Schubert, colours by Carla Feeney, whilst Dan Raspler and Peter Tomasai were the assistant and editor. Isn't Peter Tomasai now the writer of Batman and Robin?
3: Yep, and Green Lantern Co.
1: Right, okay. Apparently they're very good. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Final Night, just as a little bit of backstory, was yet another of those interminable crossovers that proliferated comics in the 90s. And unfortunately carry on to this day. To be fair, Final Night wasn't a bad one concerning the extinguishing of the sun and the DC superheroes' attempts to reignite it. It is notable for being the death of Parallax, who at that point was Green Lantern Hal Jordan. I don't think we've ever mentioned that before, have we? Probably not. No, no, I don't think we've we've touched upon that. Um, Hal used his own power to revive the sun at the expense of his own life. Somehow, it also resurrected Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow.
0: Yeah.
1: As we would find out in Kevin Smith's Green Arrow story arc, Quiver, in 2000, 2001, something like that. Took his time. Yeah. The story for this one... As the final night descends, the occupants of Noonan's bar all recall the time they came closest to death. For owner of the bar, Sean Noonan, it was in Korea, dug in south of Seoul New Year's Day. Marines versus Chinese, outnumbered and outgunned, the entire platoon lost, except for Noonan and his sergeant. With a new wave advancing and no ammo, all looks lost. When the Air Force swoop in, saving Sean, but too late for the sergeant, Noonan wishes he could remember his name. Nat the Hat tells the tale next. Two days after his return from the Gulf in 91, Nat hooks up with a gang-banging pack called the Sixties, who were embroiled in a smooth narcotics-for-firearms transaction. Nat could care less, but the leader of the other gang, Little Duke, knocked up his sister and then left without a word, so payback is called for. Nat is set up by the Sixties leader, who doesn't want to pay, but Little Duke is 5-0. And this is a sting. When the bullets settle, Little Duke apologises to Nat and says he'll make good with his sister. Nat's never gotten over, been saved by the police. Hacken's tale involves a trip to the chicken factory to kill chickens. <laughs> it's tickled Michael, but it's as irrelevant as it sounds. Ringo Chen is up next. His first hit. A simple debt-settling job. All went well, silence was used, but the Dom Perignon was too tempting. He stayed for a drink and was approached silently by a man. Chen opened fire at point-blank range, but the man did not flinch. He's intrigued that Chen takes life, but revels in life. Chen asks if he was also under contract. The man says that he needed Chen to do his job first. He hands over the bullets Chen shot at him and says, until we meet again, and disappears. Tommy doesn't recall the closest time he came to death, but he remembers the first time. As kids, he and Sean's son, Pat, would be bullied by Richie and Reggiani. And after a summer of this, Tommy'd had enough. Tommy learned three things that day. Number one, the thing about bullies being cowards and if you stand up, they will back down. utter crap. Richie beat Tommy, hard. Number two, if you're going to get into it, make sure you've got your target outgunned. Tommy and Pat round up all the neighbourhood kid that Richie had been bullying all summer raged to beat down. But later, Richie shows up with a thirty-eight and points it at Tommy. But the third thing Tommy learned that night, that it ain't the gun going to tell you what's going to happen, but the eyes of the man holding it, which led him to stir Richie out. Reminiscence over, Tommy gets the next round in. A lot really happened, did it? Not really. Still a great issue though, yeah. but really enjoyable issue. Page one. The opening, with Superman on TV saying not to worry, is pretty much the only nod to the events of Final Night that we get. Uh, also on page one, panel one, there's a dead body
3: outside of Noonan's bar. We find it why on page two. Yeah, we're reading this, it's just another normal... Just another in night the in the city. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You do have to wonder why Batman hasn't shut Noonan's down at this point.
0: Yeah.
1: Is the, the problem with setting it in Gotham City. I would have liked to see Noonan's in Arkham Asylum. Yeah, just in the background somewhere. Yeah. Or in Arkham City. Maybe not in Arkham City. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. I don't know which one you mean. Is the Ace of Clubs is. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah. The Ace of Clubs is there. Club um, the but that's in Metropolis. That's in Suicide Slum. Yeah. What's he doing in Arkham City? works there. Yes. Yeah. Noonan's would have been a much better choice. Yeah, I
0: know. Yeah.
1: Tommy is in particularly reflective mood as this story opens, following the events of Ten Thousand Bullets. Tommy's friend Pat's dead. And as a result of his as a result of his job, oh, sorry. and as a result of his job being a professional hitman, Tommy's girlfriend has
3: dumped him. He's also a police agent. Oh, is that not yet? That's not yet. This oh, is his okay.
1: girlfriend before her. I don't remember
3: that one. Yeah, she's only in the first couple of issues, and then
1: shows up occasionally thereafter. Tommy was shades all the time, not because he's pretentious pop star, but because when he was attacked and bitten by a Bloodline's Ooh. parasite called Glomph he was unexpectedly given x-ray vision and moderate telepathy a side effect this is that his an and is are solid black indistinguishable from his pupils indistinguishable doesn't explain pupils. what happened
3: to his coat though so you go
1: no it doesn't explain what happened to his in coat
3: in his appearance in uh demon he has a scarf around his neck and a red and green coat maybe he just changed the coat. a red and grey coat but then when Hitman started he it's green with the green yeah. yeah
1: maybe he bought a new coat it does that but it's the same though. Maybe about a new one that was the same but a different colour. Okay. That also happens occasionally. Um, page two looters to Noonans are welcomed with a bullet to the head. Explaining the dead body on page one. Yeah. McCrea has signed page two and dated it to 12th of the 5th 96. Given the publication date and that MacReer is Irish, I presume that this is the UK standard way of dating work, and of course, the way that makes most sense, by putting the date of this page at the 12th of May. Which is quite interesting. I found that quite interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: That it was a full six months before it would actually see print. Comics aren't produced that far in advance anymore, are they?
3: No, not apparently. Really. Uh, page Which five? Would be four. better for us, it's like Jim
1: Yes, yes, it would. Page five. I like McCrea's art a great deal. Yeah. Uh, with lots of blacks. If I have a criticism, and it's a minor one, it's that his violence is a bit more cartoony than Dylan's, making the effects slightly less horrific. Given this was a code approved book, although it doesn't have the Comics Code Authority stamp on the front, does it? Maybe it wasn't code approved. Um, there's still lots of violence in the book, though which perhaps made it more palatable to publishers if it was a bit more cartoony.
3: Yeah. What you they? Probably.
1: It is a possibility.
3: Let it down for me as well. Was it? Yeah.
1: Page eight. Oh, page six, we
3: get a repeated panel.
1: Yeah, doomed in. Which isn't quite as, as irritating as it would be at the latest. It's time. still
3: noticeable because of the thicker lines.
1: Yes. It's no, it stuck straight out at me.
3: Yeah. So
1: thumb. Okay. And it's one of those things, it's one panel. Did yeah. he really save that much time by not drawing that panel? One can't imagine that he did.
3: I do like the ending for that story. What, that he doesn't even remember the sergeant's name? Well, not even that, but how him and the sergeant make the last stand, but he turns around and the sergeant's dead. Yeah, so there's only him left.
1: It was a good little story, that one. Nice little... This was like a kind of Twilight Zone issue. Lots of little different stories. Of them all sat around telling campfire tales, essentially. Uh, Page eight we're <clears throat> into Nat the hat story at this point the scene where Nat is told that the briefcase that should have the money in it contains a note saying that Little Duke knocked up Nat's sister so he's here for vengeance is exceptionally well laid out in both art and writing Little Duke's very tiny he's a little fella his cigar is bigger than he is <laughs> because Nat's set up by the leader of the 60s isn't he yeah he, I don't want to pay so he sets Nat it's, up it's
3: very much that Nat's annoyed at this guy because he's just so stupid <laughs> he's an MTV frat boy trying to do a coke deal
1: <laughs> um Little Duke wanting to go home to watch Battlestar Galactica was a very odd reference for 1991. Yeah. The original show had been off the earth for over a decade at that point, and the new one was still over a decade away. Mm. And so, why would he want to go home and watch Battlestar Galactica?
3: Maybe he's just a fan.
1: <laughs> why is he just started on the Sci Fi Channel <laughs> or something? Alright, fair enough. Um, page 12. We're into Hacken's story. <laughs> Which was, by and large, a bit of a joke in the series, but the boys looked after him. Tommy keeping him from getting killed, and he later took over the bar. Um, what is Hacken's story? I don't He's know. working in a chicken factory. <laughs> he kills chickens. But nugget <laughs> <McNuggets, laughs> time is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next he's chopping off chopping off, off chicken heads. <laughs> that's why kill all the chickens kill all the chickens <laughs> kill all the chickens, <laughs> all the chickens. <laughs> what the hell's that got to do with anything
3: it looks like a teenage doctor series book
1: <laughs> 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 yes yes it does um yeah Pets 13 through 16 Chen's story is a wonderfully little spooky vignette mm. Chen was a very interesting character. The gentleman assassin from a rough background. Chen's the typical hitman with honour. And if Tommy had a serious rival for the title of the best hitman in Gotham, it was Ringo Chen. Ultimately,
3: they ended up being friends, didn't they? No, ultimately, they ended up shooting at each other. Oh, yes, they did. Yeah. Yes, they did. But they respected each other. They did. But it was still a, I still kind of have to kill you right now. Yeah, fair enough. But, um see of course it's the Japanese man who has the coolest and yet creepiest story of the bunch yeah and it's the bit at the end where it's just like but I always thought Death would look like this and look like Clint and he says perhaps for you we will
1: yeah you yeah. know
3: because uh, now the Heart says nah you're going to look like Shaft
1: <laughs> yeah. which is <laughs> fair <laughs> enough because yeah. it doesn't negate Death looking like a pretty 16 year old goth girl hmm. Death looks like what you want Death to look like or Thanos' girlfriend yeah yeah Oh, um McCrea's depiction of Hong Kong at night is absolutely gorgeous. Mm. And yet it's very sketchy and abstracty. Yeah. There's no colour to it. Mm. It's just really good. I'll show it to the missus. Bottom panel of that page. But that's all uh, It looks quite oriental in
3: the markings.
1: It's good, isn't it? It's a really good depiction. Not how you would expect he would draw the landscape. Mm. But really well done. Are you still laughing at the chicken beheaded? <laughs> I just, let's just start the following <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, Tommy's story rounds out the issue. And I thought it was the least affecting of the lot of them to be honest with you. Mm. And Nat's is funny. Yeah. But Hacken's is funny. Ringo's is scurry.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Sean's is poignant. Yeah. Poignant. Oh, poignant. So you say it for me. Poignant. Thank you very much. Um, Tommy's is oddly just there, isn't it? Not what it was supposed to be. Yeah, it's... It's adequate. An adequate Ennis is better than most other writers out there, and this issue is a wonderful way of subverting expectations. I can imagine that there are some people who pick this issue up figuring they'd get a stand Slugfest, but Ennis just ignores Final Night and gives us this little, 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 and gives us this lovely little mates gather in a pub and shoot the breeze story that is something we can all relate to and have all done. We've all gone to the pub and shot the crap for an evening. Uh, Again, this was a break between story arcs, but it's still a solid little issue. What did you think? I enjoyed it. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. There's a part of it that thinks we should have done the annual, though. Yeah. Because, God, that annual's demented. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Good ads in this issue. Sliders gets an ad on the last page, which I vaguely remember being quite good for its first season. Hmm. and then tailing off quite rapidly Um, there's an ad for the Legion Archives and Sovereign 7 Batman Death of the Innocents and Gordon's Law the best is an advert for Green Lantern 81 which is a lovely piece of artwork with the occupants of the DC Universe mourning the loss of Hal Jordan I wouldn't get too upset he'll be back Uh, and there's an advert for Heat which is a great film you ever watched Heat? no very very good movie that one though Green Lantern 81 yeah the death of Hal Jordan. Uh, The Watch This Space page hypes the DC vs. Marvel series. Chris Clermott's long-delayed Whom Gods Destroy miniseries. Saddest of all, Scott Peterson's obituary for Mike Parabek, who died due to complications from diabetes on July 3rd, 1996. For my money, Parabek was one of the most underrated artists in comics, and his run on Batman Adventures was one of the best runs of any Batman comic ever, and deserves at the very least a showcase reprint. Get on with it, DC. DC's reprints are not
3: very good at the moment.
1: No. Still sorely missed,
3: mm. Mr Parabek.
1: And that about wraps it up for my little wander down Ennis Avenue. Yep. Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, it's Michael's turn at bat. Yes, it is. Again. And as has been customary, we're not telling you what he's doing. Because he's not told me yet.
3: I've not decided
1: yet you best be it up I want to do notes i I've started notes for next next week right uh, yeah because you know what's after what you're doing next week yeah longbow yeah. hunters so uh you planning that longbow it's going to very good yeah. to see how you did that it's going to take some it's three prestige format books mm. so it's going to take some doing so I'm <coughs> <laughs> I'm getting ahead of the game fair enough Okay, dokie thank you very much lovelies thank you for listening thank you for downloading thank you for emailing thank you for facebooking we appreciate all your comments and your patronage
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, as I've been saying with all of them if you have favourite ennices get in touch and let me know if you've read Battlefields particularly let me know if it's any good Yeah. because I have put it on my Christmas list because if it's half as good as Wolf Stories yeah. I'll probably enjoy it immensely and if you haven't read Preacher get ye to a comic emporium and buy them encourage good
3: comics uh, I, I'd discourage against buying the big hardbacks why? because the, the, the printing in them is not very good is it not? no see I've got all the issues so I've never bought the trades yeah, I, I, was, I was looking at the hardbacks and the, yeah yeah, the nice little collections and they look good but the printing inside them and the paper is very, it's not very good is it not? no
1: ok fair enough that's a shame you think the
3: hardbacks would be the best presentation there would be yeah
1: ok alright right thank you very much for listening in Feel free to drop us a like and we'll be back next week for the sixth and final part of Spotlight. Oh. Night-night. Yes. Goodbye. Night-night? Well, it's night-night for us. Yeah. i just say goodbye. Yes. Goodbye. the devil will make work for idle hands to do production and all opinions expressed in the show by Michael and Andrew are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously old episodes of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks internet radio network at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com that's T W O T R U E F R E A K dot l-i-b-s-y-n com so if you're one of those people who'd be wanting to know where all our old shows are that's where you'll find them all music and sound clips used in the show are copyright. by their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to the chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at apleyland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on, by using Hey Kids as the first name, and Comics as the surname. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion, our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, ww.forumforgeeks, all one word, dot com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.